is the official watch of the NBA. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. You know, we love China. We love no playing there. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. It's just hitting me right now. Shut up and listen. You, you think you're better than me? <laughs> All right. Welcome back to Swish FM. Chris Mandelk and Ben Crab. Ben, after a uh, brief getaway last week, we've returned to the 1994 NBA Finals between the Knicks and the Rockets. How you doing, man? How you holding up in the uh, insane summer heat here on the East Coast? Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, I'm actually back in the basement uh, here for Game 3, back in my mm-hmm. sweltering, yep. uh, humid Philadelphia basement. Um uh, it's lovely here, um, and I am ready for uh, for some more 1994 finals action on Cool Swish FM. Here we go. Uh, ben, a little housekeeping at the top of the show. Uh, a reminder for our audience, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Swish FM Radio. Please reach out and follow us there. And please, please, please uh, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts, the podcast app. Ben, uh, I was thinking we need to maybe spice things up a bit. Raise the stakes, incentivize our audience a bit to leave us a review. So if you write something, if you leave a review, whatever whatever it may be, you know, we'll read it on the air. So yeah, and then we'll you know, also give you a hundred dollars. That's right. So I mean, if it's a if it's a BMM love letter, uh, even if it's a Valentine, you know, to to Markel Fultz or Jonathan Isaac's hairdo, even if it's uh, you know m- maybe it's a body positive uh, missive on uh, Nikola Jokic's physique, mm-hmm. we will happily and delightedly read it on the air. Um, so please do that. And also the other thing I wanted to say was, um, we wanted to again, plug our friends, Gavin and D at the pick and roll podcast. Uh, all the games that we've been watching were originally painstakingly posted online and edited by the way, uh, by our friends, Gavin and D. And, uh, that was before YouTube cracked down and removed all the videos. So I just wanted to give those guys another shout out. Yeah, totally. And if also, if you want to hear us on uh, their podcasts, right. um, which they which they have and, and do from uh, from England, 
Uh, you should check it out. Uh, I forget exactly what number episode we were on, but one of the one of their the most recent, recent ones. episode. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yep, yep. And yeah, like like Ben said, they not only have an amazing podcast, an amazingly entertaining podcast, but they have a website with a really amazing blog. Ben, I don't know if you've even looked at it, but it's mostly all old, like throwback NBA stuff. It's 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 basically all. All the games that you would want to watch, they are mm. doing full on like blog posts about them with like photos. It's, oh, I don't it's think I realized that. Yeah, dude, it's an amazing. I follow them on Twitter. They have a great Twitter feed where they they post a lot of like old trivia and history and just random photos and stuff. It's just an amazing treasure trove of mm. old NBA content. So it's awesome. Highly encourage you guys to all find. Uh, those guys online, they have a website, uh, which is pickandrolluk.com. Find it, check it out. Um, and that's it. All right, Ben, let us hop into it. The date, Ben, is June 12th, 1994. Now, it's a Sunday, Ben. Mm. Um, obviously, obviously, later today, mm-hmm. later today, the Knicks and the Rockets will be squaring off at Madison Square Garden in Game 3 of the NBA Finals. But before that, Ben, we, uh, we're going to be giving you a little vegetable platter, Ben. We're going to be uh, making you eat your veggies. I love I know veggies. You, I know you wanted to get away with you know just your ice cream, but it's not going to be so simple, Ben. No way. So before, no way. As before, I like to tell my three-year-old son, Teo, uh, you got to eat at least two more pieces of that broccoli before you get an ice cream sundae. Ben, this is your broccoli. Um, so before we dive into the game, I wanted to zoom out and talk a little bit about some of the happenings in the world, Ben. Okay, so the LGBTQ uh, events uh, of, of, of the day are, are happening in all major cities around the world. Ben, of course, it is Gay Pride. It is Gay Pride, uh, the weekend of June 12th, 1994, here in New York City. Of course, we are celebrating 25 years uh, the 25-year mm. anniversary of the 1969 Stonewall Riots, right, uh, which basically sparked the modern LGBTQ rights movement. So Stonewall 25 was the largest LGBTQ event in history with at least uh, reported 1 million people taking part in the International March on the United Nations to Affirm the Human Rights of Lesbian and Gay People, uh, this event sort of sparked two counter marches. Um, one was called the Spirit of Stonewall, and the mm-hmm. other was the first annual New York City Drag March. To, just to interject, a, uh, a little, uh, I think, salient historical note here is that the, uh, the riots, as they were called, the Stonewall riots, were sparked in response to, uh, what do you think, Chris? Police activity. Police activity, Ooh. a police raid. Uh, that began in the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. Um, so thank you, as always, to our uh, brave police officers uh, for creating the gay rights movement in, uh, in America. A lot of incredible, important political activism, a spirited marching happening uh, right down the street from Madison Square Garden all weekend long. And of course, you know, uh, LGBTQ uh, issues rights are a universal issue, right? So this is not just like a New York centric New York centric thing. This is happening all over the world, all over our country, all the major cities in our country: Chicago, Boston, Philly, Miami, Dallas, Seattle. But Ben, the city that I actually want to talk about specifically today is Los Angeles. Hmm. Ben, okay, where 
Yeah, it is a cool 60 degrees, Ben, on this Sunday, June 12th. It is 60 degrees. We have a nice wind blowing in off the Pacific. Uh, It's a relatively quiet Sunday morning in L.A. Uh, Mm. Last night, like I was saying, was the Gay Pride Parade in West L.A. In Hollywood, the films Speed and Wolf, both of which we have previewed and discussed at length here on Swish FM. They are thriving at the box office. We know about those films. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. If it drops below 50... It blows up. What do you do? What do you do? Friends of the pod, Speed and Wolf. Ben, but our largest, most significant event won't occur actually until after our basketball game has ended. And what I am referencing, Ben, is the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. The body of 34-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson, ex-wife of O.J. Simpson, was found after midnight on the sidewalk outside her West Los Angeles home. Next to it, the body of an unidentified 26-year-old man. Both had apparently been stabbed. Simpson told police he was in Chicago at the time of the killings. He arrived at the home 12 hours after the bodies were discovered. Police escorted him to the rear of the building, and a short time later, Simpson was seen in handcuffs. After a conference with Simpson's attorney, Howard Weitzman, Simpson was released from the cuffs and taken to police headquarters for questioning. Back up, please. Get out of the way. Step back here. He's obviously shocked and upset and um, just wants to do whatever we can do to find out who did this and you know, make the necessary arrests. Nicole Brown Simpson was O.J.'s second wife. Married in 1985, they were divorced in 1992, but the couple's relationship had been stormy. Simpson was fined $700 by a Los Angeles court in 1989 after pleading no contest to wife-beating. Recently, however, friends say the two had discussed a reconciliation. Police will not say whether Simpson is a suspect in the killings. Larry Carroll, NBC News, Los Angeles. Wow, that was t- that was yeah, of course. I didn't even put that together. June twelfth was the actual date of the crime. So five days from now, Ben. Five mm. days from June twelfth, nineteen ninety four. Uh, former football star, actor, and ads <laughs> ad pitchman O.J. Simpson, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson's ex husband, will be charged in the killings of. Uh, his ex-wife, and Ron Goldman. So, Ben, before we, like, dive into the significance of all that stuff, and, and I want to have that discussion kind of at, at a later date, mm-hmm. um, just for the, for the sake of time, before we dive into the significance of all that stuff and, and the, the trial of the century and the incredibly complicated, you know, racial politics of the O.J. Simpson trial with the LAPD, how all of this stuff gets interwoven and how it all intersects with the Knicks Rockets playoff series. For now, I I want to hold off like on the analysis and just stick to like the facts. Basically, literally what we know happened on June 12, 1994. We'll get into the trial at another point mm. um, because there's just so much to dissect and unpack. But I just want to talk about Sunday, June 12th. Um, this next portion is going to be pretty detailed so i'm going to try to kind of move us at a at a at a at a healthy clip here um and this is a timeline of events for june 12 1994 
the uh, the events are all based on accounts from the O.J. Simpson trial. So this is all trial, like testimony sworn under oath. Um, so here, here we go. Ready? All right. All right. So, Ben, June 12, 1994. It's 7 a.m. Uh, O.J. Simpson goes to the Riviera Golf Club. He plays around a golf with his friend who's a TV producer, Craig Baumgartner. They play cards in the clubhouse. Mm. Um, that morning, Nicole Brown Simpson, she is spending the morning shopping for toys. Uh, she later calls some family and friends. She's preparing that evening for her daughter, Sydney's dance recital. Ron Goldman spends the morning playing softball at Barrington Field uh, right off Sunset Boulevard, and then he goes home, gets dressed for work. Okay, now it's later in the afternoon, 2 o'clock. So O.J. Simpson had a small guest house where uh, a gentleman named Brian Cato Kalin lives. So uh, Cato Kalin was a largely unemployed actor, um, just kind of living on the west side of L.A., kind of like a surfer dude. Uh, so Cato Kalen around two o'clock sees OJ in the, in, in the, in the kitchen of his Rockingham estate. Uh, and then he overhears OJ making a series of phone calls to different women. So we kind of learned from Cato's uh, testimony that OJ was actually, um, <laughs> kind of on the prowl, uh, looking for new women. He was, he was mm-hmm. an adulterer. He, he was uh, he was divorced, I should say, at this point in his life, but he had many women. He was kind of like parlaying you know, all these different women in his life. And were, so they, his, were they actually like legally divorced or were they just yes. separated at the time? They were divorced? They were divorced. Yeah, okay. They were divorced. Yeah, yeah. I, I know he, refer, he refers to her as his ex-wife. Right. So that to me would indicate like legal divorce, mm. but it is curious to me why she kept his last name, but they were also reconciling too. So that mm. I think that is an important element here that they were actively trying to make it work. Right. Obviously um, they were still in pretty regular contact. Yes. And they, yeah. and they lived at separate homes. Yeah. So uh, that afternoon, two o'clock, uh, Kato Kalen overhears OJ making a series of phone calls. So first OJ calls uh, his girlfriend, Paula Barbieri, um, and then they have a fight about Paula Barbieri's request. She wants to go to Sydney's dance recital that night with OJ. OJ doesn't want it. So Paula gets all mad. She winds up flying out to Las Vegas to spend time with the singer Michael Bolton. Next, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Next, OJ calls uh, the actress... Um, the actress Jasmine Guy from a different world. Okay. Um, they talk briefly. Then he call, and then he calls uh, Tracy Adele, and they talk for forty five minutes. Tracy Adele. So OJ says he's unhappy. Uh, last year, uh, Tracy Adele revealed to Radar Online that uh, OJ actually openly joked around with her on the phone about Nicole in their conversation. A few. This is a few hours before her death. Mm. And she says, quote, he made a little joke about how I'm not his typical type. She was a five, she is a five foot, 11 inch woman. She was a playboy centerfold brunette. Um, He said he mostly dated blondes and said, I guess that hasn't really worked out for me. And then he went on to say, quote, I've had enough. I've lived my life. I've done things most people couldn't do in a hundred lifetimes. So very like odd level of Mm. introspection Mm-hmm. Uh, the day the woman you've been like predatorily beating 
uh, somehow manages to die. Like very, very like odd level of uh, self introspection there from OJ. Yeah. Anyways, so now it's four o'clock. Um, before leaving for the dance recital, OJ asks Kato Kalen to uh, to line up a date for him for the following week. Around four thirty. Nicole and her family arrive at the middle school for Sydney's dance recital. Ron Goldman checks in at Mezzaluna Restaurant, where he, he's working as a waiter. Around quarter to five, OJ arrives at the dance recital. They're sitting, he's sitting behind Nicole and her, her parents, the Brown family. Um, and then around 6.15, after the recital, OJ is talking with the Browns. They're making small talk, laughing. Everyone goes their separate way. 6.30, 7 o'clock, Nicole... And her parents go to Mezzaluna Restaurant. OJ goes back to the Rockingham Estate. He tells Cato that he's very angry about seeing Nicole, that she's wearing like a short, tight dress. And he's upset that he wasn't invited to go have dinner with them at Mezzaluna. Hmm. So now it's 7.30. The Knicks and the Rockets are tipping off. It's game three, 1994. The NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden. It's broadcast on NBC. 7.35. Um, OJ calls a woman named Gretchen Stockdale, former Los Angeles Raiderette, and he leaves a message on her voicemail. He says, hey, it's Orenthal James. Uh, I am finally at a place in my life where I am totally, totally unattached. Hmm. Now it's 8.30. Nicole leaves the restaurant. Uh, At 9 o'clock, Faye Resnick, who is an author and I guess is one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, she calls her friend Nicole. Uh, She's in drug rehab at the time. She calls Nicole, and she's talking with Nicole about the evening, and Nicole tells her that she just saw OJ, and she told him, get away from us, get out of my life, you're not welcome with this family anymore. That's 9 o'clock. At 9.03, Cato Kalen uh, gets on the, on the phone with his friend, but he's interrupted by OJ, who needs 20 bucks for dinner. A few minutes later, OJ and Cato Kalen go to McDonald's in OJ's Bentley. <laughs> At 9.25, Cato uh, buys them dinner. OJ eats on the way home. Um, 9.30, Ron Goldman gets off work. Uh, the Knicks and the Rockets are wrapping up the game. 9.35, Cato Kalen leaves OJ standing near his Bentley at the, at the Rockingham Estate. So at 9.37, Nicole's mother, Judith Brown, calls Mezzaluna Restaurant reporting that she, she forgot her eyeglasses there. Um, Nicole calls Mezzaluna, and she talks to this woman, Karen Lee Crawford, and she gets in touch with Ron Goldman, who's like a personal friend. Ron Goldman is 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 friendly with uh, Nicole Brown Simpson, mm. and Ron says he will take the glasses. Uh, and on his way home, he's going to go change, and then he's going to drive over to Nicole's place and and bring the eyeglasses. Nine forty five, nine fifty. Um, a domestic worker in the house next to OJ's hears a dog barking. Ten minutes after ten, Cato Kalen uh, calls a friend of his. 10.15, Nicole's neighbors start hearing dogs barking. And prosecutors say at this time, uh, th- th- this is likely when the killings are happening, around 10.15 at night. Mm. At 10.30, Nicole's neighbor uh, is taking his dog for a walk. Now, at 10.22, uh, a limousine driver named Alan Park arrives at Rockingham to take OJ to the airport for a trip to Chicago. He's going to be doing some press event for Hertz in Chicago. Hmm. So he, the limousine driver sh- shows up at Rockingham. He's waiting on the side streets. 
10.40, OJ still doesn't come out. He walks up to the front door, rings the buzzer, knocks on the door three or four times. There's no answer. Um, and then a resident near Nicole's home reports hearing someone shout, hey, 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 a few times. Now it's 10.45. Kato, uh, Kato Kalen is uh, still on the phone with his friend, and he hears a thump on the wall near the air conditioner in the back of his house. Um, and then... Uh, the limo driver tries calling his boss. Now it's 10.55. The limo driver sees Kato Kalen near the house. And finally, O.J. Simpson walks to the front door. So it's five minutes to 11. Um, and then Kato Kalen lets the limo driver into the house. Nicole's neighbor finds Nicole's dog, who's run loose at this point. Um, at 11.01... OJ comes out of the house. He starts to load the limo. Kato Kalen says there was this weird sound by the back of his house. OJ says maybe there was an intruder. So they spend about five or ten minutes like looking around the property. Maybe that maybe someone was trying to break in. Hmm. Um, the neighbor finds Nicole's dog, who has escaped through the front gate at this point. And at this point, the limo driver and OJ are en route to the airport. Um, the neighbor at this point around eleven forty. The dog leads uh, the neighbor back to Nicole's house. The dog, like, finds its way home. And this is when the neighbor starts noticing blood on the paws and the legs of the dog. Uh, OJ arrives in Chicago at this point. It's at 11.45 at night. By midnight, Bettina Rasmussen, uh, the neighbor of Nicole's, has taken the dog home. And she leads them, the dog leads them to the condo where Nicole was living and finds the the two dead bodies of Nicole Brown Simpson and Rod Goldman at 10 minutes after midnight. So wait, the neighbor actually discovered the bodies first? Yes. The dog, Nicole's dog escaped through the iron gate and, um, and was barking and the dog was covered in blood and the neighbor, Nicole's neighbor was walking her own dog and, so, you know, like Nicole's dog spotted the neighbor's dog and they're like, oh, you know, like, where's this dog from? And, and the dog right. led them back to, to the home. Jesus. So I know that's like a lot of information. Um, and like I said, I, I want to hold off on doing too much analysis of any of this stuff. I just want to like lay the facts out there. But one last sort of uh, chunk of information here. Uh, Nicole Brown Simpson lived at 875 South Bundy Drive in Brentwood, uh, in Brentwood, California, with her two children. And she was stabbed to death, like I said, outside her home with Ron Goldman, who was a 25-year-old. He was a waiter at a restaurant, uh, an aspiring model, and I think he had plans to open up his own restaurant. Um, You know, like we said, her body... Her body was found shortly after midnight, um, but she was killed on Sunday, June 12th. And when she was found, she was she was found lying in the fetal position in a pool of blood. And the autopsy that the coroner did determined that her body had been stabbed seven times in the neck and in the scalp, and she had a gash on her throat that was five and a half inches long. And they said the the wound was so deep that it nearly severed um, her entire head. Uh, it the 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 wound was so deep that it actually went 
almost, I think they said three quarters of an inch into her vertebrae. Um, Jesus. Nearly, deca- nearly deca- decapitating her. So, um, and there were also, there were defense wounds on her hands. So, you know, I, th- I think like a major thing to talk about here is that like she wasn't living with OJ uh, and OJ was, you know, set her up in this rental property down the street from him. And, you know, OJ was a, was a, was convicted of, of beating his wife, I believe in 1989 and was sentenced to a fine of $700. And, um, I know we've both rewatched and talked a lot about the, uh, the ESPN OJ Simpson made in America documentary, but like how much of that story was, you know, a story about domestic violence and, um, yeah, man, all this stuff happened uh, on the date of June 12th, 1994, while the Knicks and the Rockets were playing game three. And um, there's just, like, a lot to unpack. Like we said, this this story is actually literally going to intersect with one of the games that we're going to discuss real soon. So it, I, I felt like it was an appropriate time to start having the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, (laughs) uh, shit. I mean, I, uh, by the way, I I want to, I'm I'm so glad that you're going into this blind. Like there's nothing there. Like I, I, I was secretly like very happy that you were busy and like, couldn't do a ton of like prep on this. Yes. Just for our listeners sake, I didn't actually know that, uh, uh, Chris would be starting the podcast like this um, because I myself hadn't lined up the dates in my head. Um, obviously, I knew that in a couple of games we'd be discussing, you know, the Bronco, um, yada, yada, and that, you know, it, this was like going to be uh, a theme. But um, but yeah, it's it's thank you, uh, I guess, <laughs> if that's the right <laughs> phrase. Uh for reminding me that like, yeah, this is actually the date that, um, that, that sort of story, um, you know, sort of begins, obviously it had, it, there was a lot that led up to that. Um, but that the actual murders were, were June 12, not the more famous date of, uh, you know, the Bronco and the trial and yada, yada. Um, so yeah, (laughs) I, I think it's, I think it's important to say that like, my experience of like thinking about this and even just like reading the timeline of events of like the day, you know, it's interesting, man. Like there is sort of like this, I can't quite put my finger on it. So help me out if you, if you know what I'm talking about, but there is like a sort of like sexy romance or something about like talking about this, um, the OJ Simpson case and like yeah. the trial yeah. of the century. And it's very like right. gossipy and pulp, like pop culture-y and like yeah yeah pulpy, you remember right? yeah you remember like but the snl jokes you remember johnny cochran yeah like all you, the you, yeah just the Mark, the, the characters and, and the and color Clark. right and right, like right. how crazy it all was and how cartoonish it all was and you remember like oj's commercials and the naked gun Inside movies Edition. Right, um, right right and just all the just 
ridiculous insanity surrounding it. Um, because it became like a pop culture event. Of course. In the way that the NBA Finals was and is a pop culture event. Yeah. But like it, I, I think it's like actually vital that we stay grounded in like the horror of yeah. the event. Yeah. And it's interesting, like reading the timeline of events I, uh, of June 12th, like I was re-experiencing that literal process of being like, oh, right, this is so fun. Like, right, Mezzaluna, and I get to hear about this, and I get to hear about that detail, and isn't that interesting? And then when you realize like what you're like ogling over, like yeah. it's so like m- morbid and like... yeah. And just, just the fact that, I mean, you know, it's just driven home by, like, the fact that, like, sh- they were at their fucking child's school recital that yeah. evening. Um, and, of course, it's, we should remind everyone that uh, their children, their two children, were sleeping in the bedroom upstairs um, and were in yeah. the house uh, yeah. when when these murders um, were committed. And the fact that Ron Goldman was killed simply because... Uh, Nicole's mom left her glasses at the wrong restaurant. Wrong place at the wrong time. And that yeah, if he <laughs> hadn't been having to return some glasses that were left at a restaurant, a totally a trivial nice thing that happens all the time, yeah. you yeah. know, you say, oh, you know what, I'll just run him back over to her house. It's a few minutes away. Um, yeah, it's absolutely horrifying and nauseating. And Yeah, uh, like, I, like, like I said, there's so much to unpack that... Uh, I'm, you know, like I said, like I said the other week when we talked about like NAFTA, uh, this is just like a breaking of the ice. This is like a conversation starter. (laughs) This is by no means like comprehensive or anything like that. Yeah. Um, This is us like literally just trying to give a little color to what else was happening in the world while we were watching these basketball games. But um, there is something interesting and I haven't really totally fully considered until now about like the full say the full circle nature and the sort of like extremely bitter irony i guess about uh this being gay pride weekend Mm. when these like grizzly murders occurred considering a few things one like that oj's father um was gay and oj has some pretty well documented homophobia issues and clearly did not embrace his father's identity yeah and the subject actually of many of the beatings that nicole would suffer from oj were the result of her being friendly with gay people Yep. And OJ yeah, the New, Year, the New Year's Eve incident, the, um, Hawaii, the Hawaii incident, like the, yeah. the, he was just completely mortified of gayness. Mm-hmm. And so there is sort of like a, like I said, a very bitter, horrible, like full, full circle, whatever to, to, to all this about this happening during the weekend of, um, of, of gay pride. Mm. Um, yeah. And also just like that Nicole really was, Nicole was a model at one point in her life. She was in the fashion world. Like she 
had many, many gay friends. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she would die this weekend is just all the more like horrible. Um, yeah. So it's just something I've never really fully considered. And like I said, uh, there are so many elements to the case that we can unpack and talk about. And I hope to do that with you over the next, however many podcasts that we talk about the Knicks rocket series. Um, like I said, between the racial politics of the LAPD and Mark Furman and OJ's identity politics and his place within the African American community and, um, you know, the, the, the politics of, of, of gender and discrimination among gay people. I mean, there's just, there's just so much happening, class, wealth, power, all of it. Um, there, there's so much to discuss, but, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, this is just a conversation starter. This is not meant to be any sort of like comprehensive, uh, um, review of the, yeah, man. No, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like amongst all the, I mean, you know, the documentary that, uh, that, that we've both watched now multiple times is what, like six hours long. Um, and never once am- amongst all the like incredible, uh, just little details and, and links and connections and bits of trivia, um, and ironies and, and just like all the, the, the information that's contained, uh, in that incredibly deep and rich, uh, documentary, uh, they don't even, I don't, I completely didn't, I, they never mentioned the fact that it was gay pride week or that, um, I mean, they, they, you know, they discuss the issue of homophobia, um, and, and OJ's father and, you know, some of the incidents with Nicole's friends, but not like in any like deep way, um, where to the point where I never really made that connection. I never, um, never put that together. Um, and yeah, and the fact that it was the 25th anniversary of Stone, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, there was just so much. There was it was just this insane confluence of yeah. events. It's just um, everything. It's 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 a story that literally encapsulates like the history of America. Um, yeah, and it's I, everything. <laughs> and it's I, so I, much. I, yeah, and I think like it's just all the more reason that we need to be talking about like what else was happening in the world. Because, yeah. like, uh, you know, it, it turns out that 1994 was, like, a very ripe time in, like, American history. Uh, like, politically, socially, racially, um, there, culturally, there, were, there was just so much happening beyond sports that sort of permeates and transcends sports mm. on, a, on, on a cultural level. So, um, yeah, like all the more reason to continue to have these conversations and sort of like put these sporting events in some sort of perspective um, because quite literally the game we're about to discuss is happening during the final moments of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman's lives. So, Wow. Without, without and here, I, and here I was thinking we would, uh, we would be kicking things off with this uh, discussion of uh, Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution of, uh, of 1994, <laughs> but... Uh, Boy, I, might, I got, I might I got blindsided that. with that one. <laughs> yeah, I might save that for another episode. Yeah, not to not to give away any uh, any future. Uh, yeah, yeah. Vegetables. Without further ado, Ben, um, you <laughs> have you've eaten your vegetables. You've been a have good I boy. Ever? Jesus Christ! And we are now, Ben, going to 
hop into the meat and potatoes, shovel shovel those mm. meat and potatoes down your gullet. That's uh, right. Like a good boy, you've earned it. And uh, here we are, Ben. It is the NBA on NBC. It's game three of the 1994 NBA Finals, June 12th, 1994, between the Knicks and the Rockets. Let's go ahead and do this, baby. NBA World Championship, baby. One, two, three, Rockets. The Houston Rockets were a confident team after beating the Knicks in game one, partly because while Patrick Ewing had done his part, many of his teammates had not. But in game two, Ewing's burden was lifted. saw contributions come from all directions, like 11-year veteran Derek Harper, picking a crucial moment to come through as he had so many times in his prime. Liberated now from what had become a basketball graveyard in Dallas, he knows this could be his last chance to win an NBA title. And how about the Ewing reinforcements? His teammates, who so willingly took turns throwing their smaller bodies at seven-foot-tall Akeem Olajuwon. Olajuwon just happens to be the league's most valuable player. But the Knicks hung in until finally wearing him down, winning the battle and the game. Tonight, the Knicks will try it again, this time with 19,763 on their side. Game three is next. The series is tied 1-1. It is our first night back at the Garden um, in what feels like ages uh, for our podcast. Um, yeah. uh, you know, the last time we, we discussed a playoff game at Madison Square Garden was Game 7 of the Pacers series, the previous round. But that was weeks ago now, uh, you know, speaking in, in, in our podcast timeline, um, since we've had, a, you know, several episodes in between the Eastern Conference Finals and the NBA Finals. So it feels like we've been away from home for ages. Um, and uh, and I was struck by the fact that the opening of this game with the, with the broadcast that we uh, pulled off of YouTube, courtesy of uh, our friends Pick and Roll UK, um, there's no uh, pregame introduction. Um, there's no, um, you know, MSG uh, laser show, starting lineups, nothing. The game just starts uh, right off with the opening tip. Uh, and the first words spoken on the broadcast in this uh, file is Marv Albert informing us the Knicks have lost seven straight game threes. Game threes of a series, Knicks have lost seven straight Chicago game three against the Nets. Yeah, not not the, not the greatest kind of harbinger of uh, of what is to come here. Uh, thank you, Marv Albert, for reminding us um, of that painful bit of trivia. Um, and it really was just like it it kind of it it made sense though. It sort of it felt fitting. Like instead of like some like comforting celebratory return home, it's just like here we go. We're back at the garden, and the Knicks are probably going to lose this game if history is any indication. So, just wanted to prepare you for the pain that you are about to endure. Um, but honestly, not to give anything away, Chris, uh, I don't think anything could have prepared me uh, for what we are uh, uh, about to discuss here. 
uh, in game three. Um, whew, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, so we should... Yeah, go go on. And an initial thought I had was just, you know, so we, we begin the game here. Kenny, Sprint, Kenny Smith is pressing Derek Harper to begin the game. And my original thought was just like, when was the last time, Ben, the Garden Faithful saw an NBA Finals game today, before today, you know, in game three? And I literally realized it was 1973. Yeah, 73, so over 20 like, years ago. There is definitely like a weird edge in the air, a sort of weird brimming excitement, mm-hmm. um, but also just like terror or something. Like, I, yeah, I, did you get that sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think the fact that we weren't treated to the pregame intro, we it was like hard to kind of like get a get a grab, like get kind of get our feet under us. Like we didn't. It was hard to judge like how the crowd felt. Um, but. So- uh, Clearly, I, the, I, the Knicks were. I have a confession were... for you. I have a confession oh, yeah? for you. Um, okay. I was actually able to locate a uh, full copy of the game. Really? Wow. Okay. I only located it after I watched this game. Mm-hmm. So it's your call. If you want, I can splice in the introduction. If. If that would make you feel better, or do you want just like the naked raw experience that we have had? I don't know. I mean, was there anything notable from the intro from the NBC? I mean, you know, uh, it's mad. Yeah, it's magic. It's pure magic. Of course. Yeah. Oh fuck! I didn't even think of. I should have searched for that myself. The OJ thing was really difficult for you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna treat you. I think. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Chris. I I think I'll give you a little treat. broccoli it was oh very difficult for you so yes. yeah yeah it you'll was getting, by the way yeah you'll be getting a nice little treat <laughs> okay i appreciate that thank you um yeah yeah wow um yeah it's it's again i didn't that didn't even really occur to me the fact that it was yeah the first the first finals game that that most of the people in the stands had probably yeah. ever experienced um yeah 
because it was so long ago. Um, so yeah, so getting into the game, I mean, um, the Knicks start out flat. Um, they clearly are, are you know, a little a little new new to this, just like the fans. Um, you know, they missed their their first few few shots. Uh, I think they had two points in the first three minutes of the of the court of the first quarter, shooting one of six. Charles Oakley, uh, quote unquote, draws a moan from the crowd um, after a uh, I think he airballed like a long a long two. Um, Rockets go up 11-2. Uh, Knicks call timeout with 8:24 left um, after a, uh, a Vernon Maxwell fast break. Um, Vernon Maxwell looking really good early here, and coming out of the timeout, Marv says regarding Vernon Maxwell. Vernon Maxwell off to the quick start here in the early going. At all times, the question concerning Maxwell: Can he play under control? We talked about that with the man they call Mad Max. I felt like I've been pretty decent um, throughout the playoffs with my emotions or whatever, but um, I have to play with a lot of emotions because I feel like I'm the emotional leader on the ball club and uh, my teammates feed off my emotions. And um, But just staying within the team system, you know, but, just draw a line, you know, to cool it, know when to cool it and know when to, you know, I can carry it. And um, I feel like I'm ready for that. It's weird. For some reason, like, this, this soundbite that they dropped and, and Marv's framing of it, the way he teed it up. Can he play under control? Um, struck me kind of for the first time, um, and this is an indictment of my own, I guess, yep. like sort of sensibilities, but like, yep. l- like sort of never before have I just felt so like gross about that question um, from Marv. And Can I ask ab- like the obvious? Like, are there racial? Is, yes. Is, is, okay. Uh, aren't, aren't there? Like, Let me just read you my notes word for word. Can he play under control, asked Marv. So fucking condescending, Jesus Christ. Treating these men like they are goddamn children. Never thought about it, but it's pretty fucking racist. Has any white player ever been asked if he can play under control? That was literally what I wrote in my notes. Um, And I don't know why, out of all the times... I mean, Marv asked this question multiple times about John Starks, about Vernon Maxwell, about, you know, uh, lots of different players. But for some reason in this game was the first time it really was like okay, I need to just, like, get some thoughts down on this um, because it really bothered me for some reason. Yeah, um, I would say Vernon Maxwell was portrayed by the media by by and specifically, like, the broadcast guys, Marvin Gukius, as, like, an out-of-control black man. Who, a scary like, black needed, man. Yeah, a scary black man who needed to learn to behave and play under control. Yeah. And, and yeah. I will say, like, sports is sort of, like, there is, like, a sort of, like, disciplinary, like, nature to sports where, like, mm-hmm. the idea, the objective, the idea of a good player is someone that, like, follows the rules and practices mm-hmm. hard and obeys the coach. Conform, and, like, run, runs the plays, to the system. Conforms to the system is, like, a yeah. good, like... Does what Belich- coach says. As it, is it like a good Belichickian, like servile, like yeah. bow to the master coach, playing um, the right way? Yeah, right, playing playing the right way. And I would say John Starks and Vernon Maxwell will were both portrayed as sort of like flying off the hinge, wild, out of control, you know, liabilities. They, yeah, they were very much referred to as liabilities to the yeah, point wild where animals. later yeah. later in the game, we the the broadcast team is openly talking about Maxwell's like police track record. They yeah. mention an incident where he is pulled over and has a handgun. 
uh, in his car and just... It, it, yeah, he was actually like fined and I believe suspended uh, late yeah. in the season that they bring up. Um, and yeah, we'll, we're going to be talking a lot more about sure. Bernard Maxwell later later in this episode. Yeah, But there are sort of these racial... Would this be overtones or undertones? What tones? I mean, like, I, like, I, I think it seems pretty overt to me. Yeah, uh, pretty overt. I mean, they didn't come right out and you know note his race while discussing these issues, but I mean, it's yeah, it's it's pretty clear. Like yeah, and like you, you know. say, like these these discussions never come up about the white players. So mm. no, Matt Matt Bullard was not a uh, uh, you know someone that they had to worry about. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, kind of very interesting coming out of the timeout here that, you know, like from the outset, there is a ongoing discussion about Vernon Maxwell's behavior. And, yeah. and, and it does seem squarely on the shoulders of Vernon Maxwell and John Starks, uh, and, you know, like a battle of like, who, like which player can play most under control. Um, so, right. Yeah, it's not about like, oh, who can, you know, shoot the best, who can play the best defense. It's like who can keep their emotions in check. Yes. Uh that's yeah. that's who's going to win this this battle of 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 wills. Uh, you know, who who can exhibit more maturity. Yes. Well, yeah. maturity aside, emotions aside, Vernon Maxwell is playing a hell of a game to start the to to start uh here in the in the in the first quarter. So, he hits an amazing driving layup. The score is now 13 to 4. Houston is up. Um Patrick responds with a jumper. It's 13-6. There's about 6 minutes 30 seconds left. And then Patrick with an absolute freaking volleyball spike. Laurie went to the crossover to set up Elijah He's Yep, yep, but uh, but Ori follows up. Uh, he, he's able to collect and, and put it in. So right. Rockets jumping out to a fifteen to six lead. Uh, Starks answers with a uh, just a, a very aggressive, awesome kind of streaking down in transition. Starks all the way. Takes on the uh, the whole defense on his own and scores fifteen to eight. Uh, about halfway through the quarter now, the Knicks put a little run together. Here's Hopper for three. Harper swishes a, a corner three, and again, we will be talking quite a bit about Derek Harper uh, as as we proceed here. Charles Smith hits a, a long baseline jumper uh, off some nice ball movement. Knicks pull within one, 16 to 15. Um, Did you? Uh, I, then, I, I, I know this moment must have made you laugh. So Ewing is struggling to get a, a rebound and absolutely oh, yeah. pegs Robert Horry with the ball <laughs> yes, as he's yes. falling out of bounds. Oh, Ewing with the save. That's a huge ovation. Oh, yeah. Obviously, Nothing MSG like, loves more than, than pegging the ball out of bounds <laughs> off, off the opposing player. That's just a heads-up basketball play. The ovation, you know, like, it's a heads-up play, but it's <laughs> obvious, like, the ovation is much more, like, childish. It's just yeah. about, like, the fact that, like, Robert Ori got drilled with a basketball. Which oh, I it's the admit, best. Like, we're both laughing. Like, it's pretty fucking funny. It's the best play in basketball because it's smart. You get the you you retain possession of the ball, but you also right. get to peg your opponent with a fucking basketball. It's so good. It's so the best. Good. Yeah. So good. So good. 
good. Yeah, um, Derek uh, Harper that. finds Charles Smith for the corner jumper. It's 16-15. Houston is up by one point with uh, four minutes and change left. Now the crowd is going absolutely wild. And then, mm-hmm. Ben, we get a celebrity row sighting. Ah, uh, our courtside notables. Are the favorite The favorite uh, part of any game for, for at Madison Square Garden for me, Chris, is running through celebrity rows. Well, checking out the notables at courtside here at Madison Square Garden. Spike Lee in his usual seat. John McEnroe on hand, back from the French Open. Donald and Mama making the scene. Inside Perlman. Also here on a regular basis, John Thompson has been following the series right throughout. John Kennedy Jr. and Daryl Hanna. And Jack has uh, returned to the scene of the playoffs. Jack Nicholson in town for the uh, premiere of his new motion picture, Wolf. So, Donald and Marla. Donald and Marla looking great. Taking in Poor game three. Marla. Marla Sunday is evening. Marla is trying to talk to her husband so desperately, and he just refuses to look at her or acknowledge no. her in any way. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's not there for a conversation, folks. Uh, yeah. Marla Maples, um, a, uh, a, a forgotten Marla. little little footnote. Um, uh, we get uh, we get famous violinist Itzhak Perlman. We get Israeli John Thompson, American. of course. Uh, yeah. Every at every game, Daryl Hannah looking great. Um, JFK Jr. Did you mention JFK Jr.? Oh, I think yeah. I missed him. Was JFK in there? Daryl Hannah's date. Oh, JFK wow! I completely, I completely missed Hanna. that. Yeah, wow! Yeah, I was yeah, just yeah, clearly, yeah. I was, I was just uh, entranced no, by, you, by Daryl. You, you were um, focused on on the uh, on, on the big prize, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, and then yeah, Jack Jack in town for the premiere of. Uh, of a movie that I'm sure at some point we are going to be yeah. uh, rewatchableing on this uh, very show. Uh, yeah. Of course, we were talking about the 1994 Jack Nicholson, Michelle Pfeiffer classic, uh, Wolf, uh, co-starring uh, uh, um, Spader. What the fuck's his first name? Um, James Spader. James Spader. I wanted to say David Spader. Um, yeah, James Spader. Um, yeah, Jackson Town. He's looking cool. Um, so yeah, a star-studded affair as always uh, at the Garden tonight, folks. Um, Fourteen twenty-two. I have Patrick with a great defensive play, smacking mm. away the entry pass to Hakeem. Uh, Starks grabs the loose ball, throws it ahead to Charles Smith for the dunk in transition. Mm. Just a great overall play here. Yep, um, a rare a rare dunk by Charles Smith in transition. Yes. Not not normally his preferred move, the dunk. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he got one in there. 1817 just, Rockets. Yeah, Knicks are just harassing Hakeem in the post, doing a mm-hmm. really good job defensively. Um, they managed to swing the ball around to Kenny Smith, who drains a long jumper. So now it's 20 to 17. Houston is up with two minutes and 29 seconds left in the first. Anything else you want to note here, Ben? Yeah, Olajuwon has been bottled up um, in the first quarter. Uh, but yeah, some good ball movement, uh, getting getting some shots for his teammates. Mm. Um, he checks out. Carl Herrera uh, checks into the game and is promptly rejected emphatically uh, by Patrick Ewing, who has been very active on D. That's yeah. already his second block. And this was a a kind of a fadeaway, like a long fadeaway jumper by Herrera that Ewing rejected, which uh, which brought to mind a a, a one Mitchell Robinson. Um, mm, yes. In the uh, in the in the in his ability to uh, to block, you know, a shot that normally you, you wouldn't uh, think would be reachable, but uh, 
Ewan gets his hands on it. Um, let's see. Anthony Mason checks in, and I have in my notes here, we can't see the side of his head in this shot, but it looks like a very fresh cut. Yeah. Uh, that beautiful, smooth dome of his is looking uh, extremely hairless. Um, and uh, and I have a feeling we might be seeing uh, something a little later on uh, uh, what, it, what, what what's on the uh, side of his head there. Um, but that's just a little little foreshadowing for you. Uh, this is a Ben Cross special here. Robert Ori. Oh, he got the step. Robert Ori with the enthusiastic celebration following that basket. He now has 10 points. Rockets by six. With an emphatic oh, slam. God. Jesus H. Christ. I, yeah. I said in my notes, that has got to be on Robert Ori's career highlight reel. Wow. I ben, really ben. forgot. Specifically, the scream. The, the scream mm-hmm. is like, that is a Ben Crab like, bone zone special yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah. It's a banshee yell. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was really taken aback uh, by the violence of this dunk and the reaction to it. Um, way, more, way more athletic than I remember. Like a right. Robert Ory, man. I was going to say, he was a bit of a conundrum. Uh, we think Hell of him yeah, as being man. just a clutch three-point shooter. Journeyman, but this guy... Old, we're, we're thinking of Robert Ory as like gray beard, old guy. Just right, like, San Antonio like a, Spurs, Los Angeles Lakers. Stomach, just kind of comes in like hoists up a three yeah you forget about him in the corner he's just standing there all play robert ory man holy boy who boy yeah and this would not be the only time this man took it strong to the hole on uh on regular occasion yeah yeah really really alarming uh what he was able to do there um and uh yeah let's see getting back into it here Oh. Last thing, I just want to note in the first quarter here, uh, and feel free to chime in with anything that, that you have. I have marred. Anthony Mason has been the Green's worst nightmare. Worst nightmare, yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank, thank you, Marv. I'm sure that uh, that Hakeem Olajuwon will not uh, ever hear that. I'm sure that won't get back to him in any way or motivate him at all. Um, Christ almighty. But, yeah, thank you, Marv. Uh, a, a, a very clever little play on, on of course, the, the dream nickname. Right. Uh, calling Mason his worst nightmare. Uh, Vernon Maxwell sneaking into the lane again for a buttery little one-handed floater. Floater. Puts the Rockets up 26-18 at the end of the quarter. Yeah. Um, I have in my notes, he's, uh, Maxwell's looking just way better and more, like, he wasn't, he didn't really scare me in games one or two. Um, I was, he was just, like, kind of there and, you know, hit some shots here and there, but I wasn't like, oh, fuck, like, get the ball out of his hands. But in uh, here in the first quarter of game three, he's looking very dangerous. Yeah, it's like, oh, we got a problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. So end of the first quarter, Rockets up 8, 26 to 18. Yeah, Robert Ori with a huge 10 points, like you said. Vernon Maxwell's yeah. been fantastic. And my general thought is just, like, the Rockets' role players have been fantastic. The dream hasn't even gotten going no. yet. Dream's been bottled up. Um, MSG he's, fans. He's living his nightmare uh, with Anthony <laughs> Mason on the court. MSG fans seem ready to pop. The Knicks just got to get out of this groove, man. There there might be some home jitters or something. I don't know what it is, but there is sort of like a walking on eggshells kind of thing. And mm-hmm. um, the Rocket role players have looked great here in quarter one. So let's move on to quarter two. Yeah. Uh, I love coming back from the break. Ahmad 
is in the MSG hallways in front of the hockey goals. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, Just hang, the New York hanging Ra- out amongst some <laughs> hockey nets. Yep. <laughs> obviously, the New York Rangers were in the Stanley Cup Finals at this time as well. Uh, Ahmad cracks a joke. Ahmad Rashad back at Madison Square Garden. Now, championship fever has hit New York strong this spring. Not only the Knicks going for a championship, but also the Rangers. Now, on Tuesday night, the basketball nets will be removed and be replaced by these hockey nets. Now, a lot of people talk about the drought for the Knicks having having not won a championship in 21 years. Well, when you talk about a drought, the Rangers have not won a championship in 54 years. There are not many people that remember uh, that championship, except for our own Marv Albert, who was there to cover the game. Marv? That's uh, pretty funny about but my grandparents have told me about it on many an occasion. Should be pointed out in the final minutes of uh, game two of the Indiana series here at the Garden, there was a spontaneous chant of Let's Go Rangers that uh, broke out that the night after the double overtime win by the Rangers over the New Jersey Devils, advancing the Rangers to the Stanley Cup final. Offensive- Anyone, of course, who grew up in New York uh, in this era remembers the chants, 1940. Yep. Oh, my um, God. Really, really brought back some memories. Yeah, uh, WFAN, MSG oh, Network. Yeah, I mean, that. it's crazy how, like, I was not that big a hockey fan, but just sort of by no. osmosis, I became no. one. I wasn't um, a hockey fan. I was just, you just get swept up in, like, the momentum of it. Yeah, right? so we had yeah. to, I had to tune in for all those Rangers playoff games. Yeah. And, um, and there was something very, those, those teams, like, really paralleled each other. Mark Messier yep. was the Patrick Ewing of the Rangers. Yep. He was the captain, the leader, um, like the and of course, you know the the, the defense the first. You know the the gritty play, um, you know laying down on the ice to to block shots. And, you know the body checks. It was very much like, oh yeah, this is a New York hockey team. Yeah, man, this is like when the Garden had an identity. It, yeah, it, like it's like true. like playing at the Garden and being a fan who went to the Garden mm-hmm. meant very specific. things things that like you it you were ascribed like a series of values like if Mm -hmm. we're being honest like it was like a lunch pail you know warrior kind of place where it was like you expected to see a certain brand of competition whether Mm -hmm. it was basketball hockey whatever it was um and yeah the knicks and the rangers really did sort of have parallel like ethoses I mean, Brian Leach was Charles Oakley on ice skates. Um, wow, there it is, you know? uh, and and I love how they they were so contrasted. Uh, this is you know getting a little off topic now, <laughs> just going down memory lane. But the uh, the Vancouver Canucks with uh, you know their like flashy uh, you know the what was it the Russian rocket Pavel Bure was that his nickname? Yeah, that's uh, remember Pavel Bure who was just this like incredibly fast like skilled scoring forward on the Canucks you know and and just the contrast between him and like the the gritty grinding New York Rangers defense it was perfect it was so just captured the imagination yeah. anyway um that's a different sport uh than our podcast is ostensibly about um Dude, but I don't uh, know what it is Greg Anthony hits a jump here's Anthony on a, on a fadeaway 27 20 the Rockets what is it man there's something about like that like lefty motion of his it always mm-hmm. kind of like he was always sort of like fading away and had like this like weird like hitch in his shot or something. The weirdest shot. He shoots the balls on the side of his head. I'm not he, crazy, like, right? Like it is like no, a no, no. weird motion. His entire torso and arms have to like spring backward in order to like to launch the ball. Um, yeah, very <laughs> weird. It's like it? a it's like a um, 
What's that medieval weapon? A trebuchet? Um, oh, something wow, where it's like know. a whole like it's like a it has to be like like a slingshot uh, motion yeah, in order for exactly. him to get the ball near the hoop. Um, uh, yeah, very weird uh, shot there. But uh, every now and then he would hit one. Um, very very sporadically. Native, yeah, New York native Mario. Ellie hits a backbreaker of a three, puts mm. Houston up 30 to 20. And yep. something that I kind of took note of over the course of this game was like the narrative of New Yorkers playing for Houston or, or just like the narrative of being a New York native kid playing in the series becomes mm-hmm. like a very like prevalent, important thing. Oh yeah. They like, always brought it up. Kenny Smith, Mario Ely. Like you couldn't say their names without saying New York product. Right, 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 right. And it meant something because like everyone was so aware that the Knicks hadn't won one since the seventies and this conversation about the Rangers not winning one since the forties. It was like, there was just this like looming kind of like anticipation of like, would this finally be the year that the Knicks and the Rangers got over the hump? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it was, it was interesting to me that like, I was very, I was like hyper aware of like which players were New Yorkers, mm-hmm. um, especially on the Rockets because it was like, that's, that's like Benedict Arnold right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. It know? totally, it felt, it felt like a, um, yeah, like a, um, a double cross, like a like a like a, de- a deceit in some way. Yeah. It's like no, 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 wait, you're not allowed to play for them. You're from New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, let's keep it moving here. Uh, anything else you want to call out? Important stuff from the second quarter. Uh, uh, I mean, Anthony Mason's looking strong. He scores yep. a little jump hook inside over both Herrera and Olajuwon, um, who who's back in the game now. Um, Let's see. I love Hakeem uh, talking about Patrick. The marquee matchup in this series, Hakeem Olajuwon going up against Patrick Ewing, a rivalry that dates back to 1984 when Ewing's Georgetown Hoyas beat by Slamajama of the University of Houston for the NCAA title. Here they are going at it for the NBA championship. We talked with Hakeem about Patrick Ewing. Really admire his play, you know, his you know, talent uh, since college because uh, he's a true center, you know, especially when he was in college, how he plugs in the middle with both hands up in the middle. And uh, most of the big men now play defense with their hands down. Just uh, Patrick is always his hands up covering. I mean, he looks like, you know, just like a tree up there. So it's, it creates a lot of problem in the middle. So it's a true center. Like a tree up there. That's what he says. Like a tree up there. It's like I mean, that's a word that is near still, and dear to our hearts. He's <laughs> still my did someone, heart. Did someone say? Did someone say tree? Was that a tree? Oh that I just heard? my lord! I knew. Like I, I love Hakeem. You know, like obviously I, I hated him in this series, but like great player, man. Like I, I, yeah. I, 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 I had a lot of love for Hakeem, and just hearing him, hearing him talk about Patrick as a true tree, it was like. You know, I, I got a little misty-eyed. I got to be honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really hard to 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 root against that guy with all your heart, like I was forced to do. But um, Patrick cuts it to an eight-point lead. Uh, Sam Cassell drains a three. Then they pull it away. Here's Cassell hitting the three. Sam Cassell, the rookie from Florida State, extends to a 37-26 Houston lead. Oh God, yeah, Cassell, Cassell. with it with a, with an answer off a double team from Olajuwon. 
and I just have FML Cassell with an answer, and then shortly thereafter, yes. let's see, there's a little Fallon Herrera, whatever, and then yeah, after that, um, there's a uh, yeah, there's some great Knicks defense. Half they're like half court trapping the Rockets now, uh, force them into a missed shot. But Cassell grabs this little offensive rebound and kind of like tight wires along the baseline, swings the ball around. Uh, eventually gets it back and scores a three that leads directly to a timeout. Cassell for three. Yes. Rockets swinging the ball so effectively, hitting the outside shots, and they have built a 42-26 lead on the Knicks with 6.17 remaining. Um, and I just have my notes. I hate this very much. Uh, Sam Cassell... Same. In my uh, notes, being... I have, Ben, this is what I mean. This is the Jekyll and Hyde thing with the Knicks. Like, we, we never know which Knicks team, specifically which, which Knicks offensive team, is going to show up. And, yeah. like, here we are. Now we're in a 42-26 to 26 hole. Yeah, it's now Sam a 16-point lead. The Knicks have gone ice cold. The Rockets are on an 8-0 run. It's like, what the hell just... is it? Like, we are at home. It's the NBA Finals. We haven't won a championship since 1972. Like, this is our first home game in the series, and this is the dog shit level effort that they come <laughs> out with in the first half. Just yeah. makes you want to pull your hair out, man. Yeah, it's really not good. Uh, after the timeout, of course, they, uh, they come back with a terrible offensive set, leading to a rush shot by Patrick Ewing uh, that he misses. I have my notes. Nick's offense is garbage in capital letters. Yep. Um, thankfully, John Starks ends the misery, slashes inside for a little bucket, 42-28. We've now got five minutes left um, in the second quarter. Marv notes Starks' knee looks better. He seems more explosive. Mm -hmm. And then I just had like a sidebar in my note here. I, I mean, does Starks remind you of anyone in the modern NBA? Like anyone that for anyone that is listening to the podcast right now that maybe didn't get a chance to see John Starks play back in the day, like, is there someone that you would compare him to? I mean, yeah, like, that's the a really thing, good question. The one thing that really stands out to me is his ability and his knack for attacking the rim. Like, he definitely mm. had the long distance game, but he really set himself apart by being the guy that would slash to the rim, like, put his head down. You know what I mean? Right, and, right. When it looked like there was no opening, he would just bowl forward and, and yes. get to the rack. Like, when he wanted Very, to. Of course, he didn't do it, like, kind of consistently, but um, it's like you always wanted to, wanted him to do it more because when he yes. did do it, you were like, oh, just do that all the time. Like, that's... Yes. That's yes. awesome. Um, and and I, I mean this in a positive way, not in the condescending way that Marv talks about it. Like, he was a very emotional player in that, like, when the Knicks needed a basket, John Starks was the emotional heart and leader of the team, not afraid yeah. to, like, put his head down and be like, screw this. I'm not going down like this. Like, you know, John Starks would famously be the player that would just shoot like go like you know oh 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 for 20 or whatever it is like in an important game but he was never afraid he was never afraid to go down swinging right right he knew when they needed the lift yeah yeah i I feel like the guy that that kind of comes to my mind when i was thinking about this comparing him to starks don't don't like recoil when i say the name but is Is he a boston celtic no 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 no. okay because i have um, have a celtic in my head but go for it okay the guy that he kind of reminds me of is a little bit modern modern player is a little bit like J.R. Smith. Like mm-hmm. the the, the mm-hmm. shame, I guess the shame with that comparison, I guess, is that 
JR has really primarily become like a three-point specialist, which is kind Mm -hmm. of like a shame in the modern NBA. But JR really has that freakish athleticism going. Oh, my God. In his prime, he was one of the nasty stunkers in the entire league. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he certainly had the athleticism as a youngster. And then another guy that comes to mind is like a young Jamal Crawford, like Mm -hmm. both former Knicks. Um, Again, both kind of like long-distance marksmen. But they could really get to the cup when they wanted to. But I'm curious, mm-hmm. who who's the Celtic that you were thinking of? Well, I was thinking Marcus Smart. Um, oh, interesting. Both because of his hard nosed defense and just like yeah. I feel like he's the guy that would just like make plays, like momentum shifting plays, and yes. he would just like kind of have a knack for like doing that like yeah. that thing, like stepping up when they they like just needed some kind of a boost. Um, yeah, and just also like afraid to like and also occasionally just going ice cold and missing a yep. shitload of three-pointers. So and not being afraid of going ice cold. Like, just yeah. being like, whatever. If I go ice cold, I'll go ice cold, but I don't care. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Anyways, tangent. Let's let's get back to the game. Um, Derek Harper. This guy <laughs> was like the bailout plan. Dude, I mean, always guy, bailing out. This the, A jumper from Derek Harper, 42-30, Houston, four minutes, 44 seconds left. Now we have the chance of defense, mm-hmm. defense. Starks gathers a rebound here, sprints up the floor, uh, and he's taking these huge, wide strides, puts his head down, goes to the basket, draws contact, misses the shot. Oakley's there for the rebound and the putback. Now it's a 10-point game, 42-32, four minutes left. Rudy calls a timeout. And, man, the graphic coming out of the timeout um, about the the Rockets squandering big leads in playoff games. Oh, yeah. Man, I didn't. I mean, we haven't been watching Rockets playoff games up until this point, so I right. I really didn't have the perspective. But like the the NBC shows this graphic that I guess it's been a real issue for the Rockets that they've been blowing big leads in in these games. At one point, they blew a twenty six point lead in Game Five to Utah, a twenty one point lead to Portland in Game Four, a nineteen point lead to Portland in Game One, a twenty point lead to Phoenix in Game Two. And Ben, as this is being discussed, Derek Harper steals the inbound pass and hits a wide open layup. We mentioned that the Rockets have had some difficulties holding on to the big early leads during the playoffs. Well, as I mentioned, Mark, oh my goodness, they threw the ball away right to Jared. Kenny Smith trips over Robert Ory's foot. It's now 42-34 Houston. Three minutes and 52 seconds left. It feels like a huge, like you can feel the momentum swinging back the other way towards the Knicks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, yeah, as you said, Kenny Smith trips over Ori. Harper steals again, his second straight steal. Uh, but then Mason is called for a travel, which is kind of a bit of a m- momentum killer there. Uh, Olajuwon hits kind of a crazy circus shot falling down in the lane uh, after that, uh, putting the Rockets back up by 10. At this point now, Patrick Ewing is shooting 4 of 12, and Olajuwon is shooting just 3 of 9. Um, or I guess maybe at, uh, after the, the shot he just hit, it's 4 of 10. But he has only 8 points uh, in the half. Um, so both centers, you know, I think because they had to ex- expend so much energy on defense kind of containing each other, it's like both sides like the offense kind of suffered Ewing misses a little jump hook but Oakley saves it flips it behind his back back to Ewing who hits on the baseline 44-36 Rockets 
Uh, then I have my notes, a, a quintessential Knicks sequence um, at 40-25. There's just like a steal, a scramble on the floor, uh, another steal. It's just yeah, like... It's guys just are just... Like, they're just doing... They're just making snow angels on the on the court, um, pretty much, and uh, it ends in a foul on Oakley sending Elijah to the line. Says, what a wild sequence! I'm like, yeah. yeah, no shit, Marv. Yeah, that's that's Nick's basketball, baby. Um, we should also note uh, throughout the game that Marv has has kind of pointed out the fact that Charles Oakley is playing on a pretty badly injured ankle, um, and I think they bring it up again later in the game. He had both like like a toe injury on one foot and like a sprained ankle on the other foot. Um, so basically both his feet are like not really working that well. Um, which, uh, which, you know, probably could help explain, uh, why, uh, the man never was able to jump more than about four inches off the Mm. ground. But, uh, but yeah, still doing his thing. Still, still in there mixing it up. Um, Ewing's rejection at the half of Hakeem. Unbelievable. And the scowl. Seconds gets it down to the line. Oh, what a save by Ashley! And then Ewing with the rejection. A spectacular ending to the first half. What a terrific effort by Patrick Ewing, who took that jump shot, not quite on the baseline, but a 45 degree gets all the way back to somehow or other outrace that ball and catch up with Elijah Wan's little hook to save the day for the New York Knicks at the end of the first half. O-M-F-G. Just the, ooh, ooh, the scowl, baby. That's Patrick's yeah. fourth block. Yeah, at the end of the half, Otis Thorpe throws one of his um, kind of uh, trademark football passes with those huge hands uh, down to a cherry-picking Olajuwon, who appears to have a wide-open layup um, right as time is expiring, but Ewing flies in out of nowhere. Uh, for the chase down block, uh, his fourth block of the half, as you said, um, which keeps the lead at 7, 45, 38. Yes, that is an actual halftime score, folks. 45, 38, Houston at the half. Yeah, Nick's just like kind of hanging around. Like it just feels like they've been down by six or eight points the entire game. Obviously, yeah. they, they got down by 16 uh, at one point, but but kind of clawed back. But um, but yeah, Houston just sort of maintaining control. Yeah, um, I, I didn't realize that the Rockets could be this mistake prone because um, the, yeah. the Knicks have clawed their way back into the game, but it really has hinged on just how bad and erroneous the Rockets have been. I mean, it's just dumb, dumb turnovers because the yeah. Knicks have been pretty bad, like pretty bad. Uh, but the Rockets just keep allowing them to hang around. So, well, we yeah. do have to say that a lot of that is due to the Knicks' defense, which is just True. like consistently like just swarming, stifling, yep. um, and which you know obviously like kind of leads to like mental error, both both physical and and mental mistakes uh, on the part of the Rockets. But uh, but yeah, so Knicks are within striking distance at the half. Um, but they're no gonna have halftime, to. Yeah, no halftime show, so we can hop right sadly. into quarter three. Uh, anything you want to make note of early on here in quarter three? Yeah, let's see. The scoring opens up with uh, Kenny Smith drilling a three just as the 24 second buzzer uh, is, is sounding. Elijah lost the dribble. 
recover. Here's Smith for three. Yes. Kenny Smith from downtown. That's his first three-pointer. Five points for Smith. And the Rockets open up a ten-point lead. And then uh, Olajuwon toast Ewing with a little, like, up-and-under move inside. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Uh, putting the, the Rockets up by 12 now. Uh, Derek Harper answers with, uh, is it a three-pointer? Nope. Nope. It's a <laughs> foot on the line two. Uh, foot on the line but two by Derek. There are Derek. a couple of those, man. I have, yeah. uh, It's like uh, my favorite thing. It's it's literally, it makes me happy every time I see it. The foot yeah, on the line two. Because it just feels like this relic from, from the past, you know? It never... It's like a little artifact that you discover. Like, ooh, look at that. A foot on the line two. It never ceases to amaze me. Like, I'll... You know, we've talked about this before. One of the, I feel like one of the modern advents has been like on on basketball on TV is like the score is always uh, on the bottom of the screen. Whereas in these mm-hmm. older games, like you had to actually sometimes wait a few minutes for the score to pop up. So lots of times I will see like a deep jump shot and I'm like, sick, yeah, like Starks hit a three or like, oh, awesome, Derek Harper just hit a three, and I was like, that. That was a three, right? Like in my notes, I can't tell you how many times where I was like, that was a three, right? And question then the mark, score, question mark. Yeah. The score pops up and it was like, they only gave us two points. Like, <laughs> why did they only give us two points? That was such a deep jump shot. Like, surely yeah. no one would take a 20 something foot jumper, but people did that. Yeah. No, if only Derek Harper had argued to the ref a little bit more, maybe he could have got that third point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, but uh, but then actually shortly after that, John Starks uh, gets free off a pick and swishes what is, in fact, a three-pointer. So yep. Nick's on a little mini run here. They pulled within seven, 50 to 43. Um, let's see, Maxwell responds with a little uh, little jumper after attacking a closeout. Um, so Starks and Maxwell now are kind of like have fallen into like a bit of a, a shootout here yep. uh, early in the third. It's really fun. I love, I, I honestly like, Aside from Hakeem and Patrick going at it, I think that is probably my favorite matchup in the series is seeing oh, Starks yeah. and Maxwell just go at each other. Yeah, again, it's it's cool how these teams like really are mirror images of each other. Um, you know, you've got Olajuwon and Ewing, you've got kind of Oakley and Thorpe are like sort of mirror images. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, Starks and Maxwell, and then like kind of like you know, uh, like reliable, but not, but not like dazzling point guard play, uh, you know, from like Smith and Harper, Kenny Smith and Harper. Hakeem, uh, with an absolutely incredible spin move and dunk on Patrick. Yeah. At the shot, actually, uh, deflected by Harper. Elijahwan with a spectacular move. Hakeem Elijahwan showing the spin, and the Rockets extend to a 14-point lead. I mean, dude, this is a masterclass right here. That that goes on the dream highlight without any question, uh, without any question, and it leads to a timeout for the Knicks. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but this was the play. Um, as soon as I saw it, I didn't remember like, you know, at what point in the series this would happen, which game it was, uh, time in the game. But as soon as this play happened, I was like, oh god, that's that's the play, and I started getting PTSD immediately. Because that is the the play that would be shown over and over again. It's the it's the oh, uh, oh yes 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 I can't unsee it yes of yeah course. it's the spin baseline around Ewing uh, and then kind of like goes up and just has this like perfect one hand dunk 
And that would be the play that they would play in slow motion on, you know, oh, NBA God. inside stuff and every NBA wasn't on it, NBC yeah, wasn't broadcast. Yeah, was it like part of the NBA on NBC intro? Pro- like, yeah, probably, probably. I, 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 like, or just know, like any there's, time there's like a the, the 1994 package. finals were mentioned, yeah, you would see that one play. And for some reason, they were just like, like the editors and producers were just like, yeah, yeah, that's the play that kind of like epitomizes what happened in the 94 right. finals. Right, right, um, right. Because, of course, it's like a, a, a beautiful highlight with a good camera angle of the star player who would, spoiler alert, go on to become the finals MVP. Uh, for the winning team so like that was the play that just kind of was the stock footage um yes. anytime so as soon as i saw it i was just like oh no that's yeah. it that's it, that's the it, play game it three tells, it tells a certain story right it's like yep ewing oh, versus elajuan one-on-one about like a very athletic man who makes this older sort of like hobbled yeah. aging player uh, look very foolish in the same way yes. that like I, you know who I was thinking about before was um, Byron Russell uh, mm. in, in the same way that like <laughs> the guy was like a very good professional basketball player and like <laughs> he will forever be remembered in like a humiliating way because of mm-hmm. one play against Michael Jordan and it's like that that is all we'll ever know of Byron Russell in terms of our basketball consciousness, which is so yeah. sad. And yeah. that you're right. That one Hakeem play, uh, where he spins and dunks on Patrick is like that, that sort of became the, like the meme of the series, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I was like, no, it, there was so much more to it than that, but yeah. Well, this is why we rewatch folks. This is why, um, to uh to to give a little bit more Dude, context in history but I yeah that play was totally like fucking forgot that it was the nba on nbc theme you just ruined everything yeah. for me i'm gonna have terrible nightmares now it was the stock footage of like it was like you know exhibit a of the greatness of hakeem olajuwon look, look at this graceful spin move around this like yeah this like flat-footed you know tree giant uh, as, yeah as immobile tree yeah yeah, yeah yeah um and uh yeah so that was cool yeah i enjoyed watching timeout. that Immediate timeout by the Knicks, 59-45. Houston is up by 14, 742 left in the third. And then coming out of the timeouts. I I don't even have to look anymore. If it's a big three, it's coming from Derek Harper, like yeah. without fail. It's coming yeah. from Derek Harper. He so, was huge. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, what would we, what would we do without Derek Harper? Like, I didn't think I'd be writing that or thinking that. Um, but he is like, honestly, up to this point, like maybe the most important player. <laughs> it's weird to say that, but also we have to talk about his defense, which is just like he's like pressing uh, whoever the ball handler is, whether it's uh, Cassell or or Kenny Smith. He's he's basically pressing full court um, on defense just hounding, just making life miserable for Houston's, uh, uh, you know, point guard um, just to get into their offensive set, which is like a major reason why the rest of the team can play lockdown defense is, is, is it took them longer to just get into their motion, get into their play because of uh, Harper's pressing. And then on offense, he's just swishing clutch threes. Um, so yeah, the guy was actually, huge. Yeah, this is a, a note that I made in the fourth quarter. I'm just going to like skip ahead and find it. Um, mm at a very like pivotal moment in the fourth, but I wrote my notes, Ben, 
Derek Harper is our second most important player on the team, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I'm, I won't even mention the play that I'm talking about right now in the fourth, but, like, here's the thing. Like, who else on the team can do the things that Derek Harper does? Yeah. Defend the point guard position. Think of him hounding Sam Cassell, Kenny Smith, all the steals, all the open court layups, uh, consistently hitting open threes, consistently yeah. hitting open threes, driving to the rim, passing the ball. The closest thing that we have to that is John Starks. And God bless John Starks. The guy was many things, but he was not consistent. Right. And he also wasn't relied on to play hounding on-ball defense, which just expends so much energy. Um, Obviously, like Starks was a great defender in his own right, but he's defending guys that don't have the ball that often because he's a shooting guard. Now, Um, I know like a lot of people like Nick fans who hear this will like be appalled to hear that Derek Harper was our second best or second most important player. And they will argue like, Hey, you know, either Mason or Oakley was the second most important player. They brought the toughness, et cetera, et cetera. But really the thing is neither guy had a reliable offensive game. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or any sort of offensive move, Oakley yeah. or Mason. No, they were no. essentially just junkyard players. They were essentially very, very skilled energy players. Yeah, and they were role players who every now and then would have like an amazing moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And played great D when they needed to, of course. Ab- absolutely. Um, and, and But the thing is, the Knicks had like a very long, deep bench of like tough guys. They had like, the Knicks had a army of Charles Oakleys and, and, and Anthony Masons. I'm they, excited to say we will be talking about Anthony Bonner uh, at some point, folks. Very excited. But yeah, yeah. the thing that we did not have, which we've talked about over the course of the Chicago series, the course of the Indiana series, the thing that we did not have was shot makers. Yeah. And Derek Harper... <laughs> was pretty clearly our best one. You know, yeah. like, aside from Patrick, aside from dumping the ball into Patrick and letting him post up and spin fade away, our only other offensive option was Derek Harper getting open for a jump shot. That was mm-hmm. our offense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for that reason, it's that I felt like, you know, it became pretty clear to me in this game that like really Derek Harper is our second most important player on the team aside from Patrick. Yeah. Pop, pop quiz, Chris, do you know who would uh, finish this game as the Knicks leading scorer? Was it Derek Harper? It was Derek Harper. (laughs) Derek Harper was the Knicks leading scorer in game three of the NBA finals in 1994. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. All right. We are in the third. Uh, let's figure out where we are. Where yeah, are I have we? jumping back into the stream oh, here. Harper's I have. Three. Yeah. Yeah. Derek Harper hits a three. John Starks hits a three after that. Um, coming off a uh, an actual, it looked like an actual drawn up play. I was surprised to see. Uh, he came down a, 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 off a pin down screen on the on the baseline and uh, got off a quick release corner three. Um, after a nice little ball movement. Um, so Knicks are with an eight now, 63-55. Four and a half minutes to go. Patrick yeah. Ewing is shooting six of 20 at this point. Um, he is expending a lot of energy on the defensive end, um, which he is successfully, like, you know, we should note, Hakeem has been contained for the most part. Two minutes and 40 seconds to go, third quarter. Rockets lead by 10. Hopper 
takes it away, and back comes Starks, leading Ewing. Oakley on the recovery. And a foul on Ori. Derek Harper pickpockets Kenny Smith. And man, like, Harper is just owning this matchup uh, in the series thus far. And then, mm. of course, the Knicks can't convert a basket on the other end. But the play ends with Vernon Maxwell jawing with a fan. He has to be separated by the refs. And then a technical foul is called on Mad Max. Oh, who, yeah. Marv says, who has to be restrained. Uh, he it turns out uh, Maxwell was jeering with the Knicks bench. This moment with, with Maxwell and the fan, I need yeah. to um, yeah, let's do it. Dwell, let's talk about dwell it. on a little bit. Um, it was it was a surprising moment. It was like kind of like a like a you know break from uh, from sort of like usual action. And a foul on Ori. Well, Kenny Smith, Vernon Maxwell, Maxwell caught with a fan. Vernon Maxwell, from time to time, will get involved answering back, and uh, that time had an answer for a fan. Things have been settled out, and now a technical foul has been called. It's on Maxwell. Who's being restrained. Well, earlier we heard Vernon tell us that he was trying to make an effort to stay under control, but that has not been the case. This is second technical of the series, and he's hearing it from the crowd. Technical was because Vernon got into a little shouting match with the players on the Nick bench back and forth, and Billy Oak saw that and called the technical. It felt very. I think we've uh, we've we've thrown around this comparison before, but like WWF-ish, where mm-hmm. it was like suddenly like, whoa, what's happening? He's like drawing with a fan, um, and uh, and yeah, as you said, it resulted in a technical foul. Um, but it made me research a little bit about Maxwell. You know, I, I knew a little bit bit of his kind of reputation, his his quote-unquote uh behavioral history but um but in researching him did you have you read at all about um the time in 1995 a year after uh in in the next season when he went and he in fact went into the stands to confront a fan i know know, i know loosely about it uh he was suspended right yeah yeah pretty crazy pretty crazy story real quick um February 6, 1995, um, Houston is playing in Portland against the Blazers, um, and there's a guy in the 10th or 12th row of the stands who's just heckling, heckling Vernon Maxwell all game long, um, and at a certain point in the game, it's not even during play, there's like a timeout, and, uh, and, and most of uh, Houston is, is sitting on the bench, most of the team's on the bench, and Vernon Maxwell just very calmly stands up walks directly into the uh, stands up 10, 10 or 12 rows. This guy's just standing there. There's like no security in sight. Um, he just walks directly into the stands, gets in the guy's face, and just cold cocks him right in the face, knocking him out and breaking his jaw. Um, he was he then very calmly walks back down the steps and sits back down on the Houston bench. A few minutes later, sort of after like 
someone realizes like what has happened here because it's during a, a you know a, a stoppage of play during a timeout. Um, some referees come over and they're just like, yeah, yeah, you're ejected. You have to leave now. Um, Wait, they didn't eject him immediately. Well, no, I mean, play didn't resume. It was just like a gotcha. you know mo- moments after they sort of like realized what had happened because it was almost like no one was really like his teammates like sort of saw him. But no one stopped him. No one tried to restrain him. They just everyone just stood and watched him walk. He didn't run. He wasn't a rushing, you know, like sudden, sudden, like you know, like rush uh, move. He just literally just walked up, uh, s- approached the guy, got inches away from him, and punched him, and then walked back and sat down on the bench. Uh, referees came over. They were like, "You're ejected. You have to leave now." He was later uh, suspended for ten games. Uh, which at that point was the second longest suspension in NBA history um, behind Kermit Washington, uh, you know, who, who uh, punched um, Maxwell's then coach, Rudy Tomjanovic, um, and was suspended 26 games back in the 70s. Uh, but yeah, Maxwell suspended 10 games, fined $20,000, which at the time was the biggest fine in NBA history. Um, and it was during the serving of that suspension that the Rockets traded for Clyde Drexler. Um, and basically that was like the, the, the moment that sort of led to like the unraveling of Maxwell's career, um, following the trade for Drexler, Maxwell just voiced like unhappiness, uh, about his playing time, uh, at the start of the playoffs in 95, um, he like feigned a hamstring injury and basically just like, uh, like it's uh, I've read conflicting things whether he like faked an injury or just like asked for t- for like a leave of absence but basically it was just like I'm not gonna play like I don't want to play for you guys anymore if Clyde Drexler is gonna be our you know the the star instead of me like I quit um and uh he did not play for the remainder of the playoffs um which of course the Rockets uh went on to to win the NBA championship that season in a sweep of the magic um the Rockets just released him, just cut him uh, following that season. And he kind of played a few more years. He actually had a really good year uh, with Philadelphia the following year, 95, 96, and then kind of bounced around to a bunch of different teams uh, for the next five or so years. Um, but that was like, basically the end of his like, sort of like, you know, times like a, like a marquee, like a star player. Have you um, seen, have you seen the incident where, with him? Yes. Yeah. There's video of it. I saw Clyde go like that, and I think that was what was determined. They construed that as a hostile action, you know. He made that move, you know. You got to use the open hand. to see which way the game was going. I got 16 hats in my case here. Who's ever on top, I got the hat. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Dude, this is wild. (laughs) Right? Right? Uh, I'm assuming that you've seen the same clip that 
I've seen, which is kind of circulating. It, it seems like everyone has the same camera footage of this incident, but did, did you see the clip of Jerry Seinfeld talking about this? Yeah. Uh, that's you, like the kind of viral Twitter yeah, yeah, yeah. clip. I, I also saw like, like a little video on, on YouTube. Um, did you notice the hat he was wearing? Yeah, he was just wearing a Blazers hat, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Isn't he like like a Knicks fan? Isn't he like like a celebrity Knicks fan or something? Yeah, I don't I have no idea. He made some joke about uh yeah, like, like he has a just suitcase having all the hats. Different hats. Yeah, yeah. But I I was confused. Was he at the game? Yeah. Is that I mean, why they were interviewing him? Yeah, I guess he was there and just like recounting his version That's of events. That's pretty fucking random. Uh and this I can't was February tell- February 6th, 95, not a playoff game. I can't in tell po- if this Portland, is Portland, Oregon. Is this Yeah, Bill, Bill Gates, Gates is, is the other yeah. person who apparently was in the stands and, like, observed this happening. Yeah. Very bizarre. Um, but, yeah, so the other thing that I read uh, is that apparently the, um, the, uh, the, the, the knockout blow um, was administered in response to this fan whose name was Steve George, uh, at the time, a 35-year-old uh, home product salesman from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and apparently, as uh, at least a couple of news reports uh, uh, indicated, George was heckling Maxwell about the miscarriage that his wife um, had suffered just like uh, like like not long before that game um jesus Christ. and uh yeah so that is what uh what 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 set maxwell off on his uh on his path there um and yeah and again like at the time you know like i'm sure it was framed like i kind of have like a vague recollection of like seeing this on like sports center and like hearing about it and like just being like oh boy mad max like at it again like right. oh he's like you know like he's uncontrollable yeah, yeah. and to be clear the guy had uh like difficulties like he you know he had a lot of interactions with with the law for like weapons possession and filed for bankruptcy like later in his career like the guy clearly like had a troubled time um but like thinking about it now and like kind of like uh, like reading the news reports and like the whole framing of it is like so different in my head than than how it was in 95 just being like yeah this guy was just like responding to like this incredible like i'm not saying like he was justified no. but like he was pretty justified like if, I think if, my, if someone justified. Yeah, talks yeah. about my wife having a fucking miscarriage um you i'm probably believe, gonna yeah you're gonna do go something do something about that yeah. um and yeah, and at the time, I just remember like, oh man, like Vernon Maxwell, he's like the the NBA player who's like all into like guns and drugs, and right. um, you know punches poor fans in the stands, and poof, what a loose cannon. Um, and yeah, bad. anyway. Yeah, yeah, dude, like the bad apple thing, like yeah, yeah. It's it's remarkable how I, I feel like the media and by osmosis through the media, like we grew up with like such a lack of empathy for certain people right like like our you just or, never got a or, or our empathy was very like selective like it was like we were told like yeah you can empathize with this sort of a person but not with that sort of a person and yeah. it was like it was very clear that someone like vernon maxwell was like a no good nick like troublemaker yeah. kind of thing yeah he was a bad guy yeah. yeah, it was filtered entirely through this media that we consumed, and there was no 
you know, alternate. There's no like, sort like of competing voice media that we loved too. Like um, we, sure, or at least that we, we that we trusted because sh- it, that sh- was. Yeah, but like, or maybe what I mean by media is entertainment that we love. Like in the same mm-hmm. way that we we devoured NBA, uh, the the way we devoured like WWF content. Like we love heroes and villains, and we love mm-hmm. these like very like packaged, uh, very easily transferable stories and narratives of like this is right. a good guy and this is a bad guy, and we root right. for the heroes and we want the villains to fail and. And it was very clear that Vernon Maxwell was, like, in the villain camp. Yeah. Yeah, which makes sense. Like, you know, if you're selling a product, you have to have a storyline. Exactly. Like, right. WF. It's like you have to have, you know, the, the human interest. You have to have, like, the drama of, like, oh, is this guy going to fly off the handle? And, like, right. you know, of course, like, the, the basketball, the on-court, you know, sort of, like, m- maneuverings and stuff is, like, one thing. But you have to have, like, the emotional investment of, like, you know knowing these guys as people and like the backstories and all the, you know, all the personal stuff. And it's yeah, like creating the soap opera element of it. Right. And it's yeah. very, it was very soap opera E and yeah, exactly. Framed in a way that it was entertainment and not something where you're like, Oh, this is just a human being like going through a really difficult time yep. <laughs> or like just doing like a, having a very human normal reaction to something um, it all had to had to be kind of like twisted and, and morphed for our consumption. Um, yeah, and, and also uh, maybe having like one of the worst moments of his career. Like, right. do you know, <laughs> like like that's what I mean about like empathy. Like the lack of compassion for someone going through what will probably be like the most embarrassing, maybe defining moment of their career. Like, is it's just interesting. Like who we selectively choose that we can give our like like be generous toward and like who right. we decide like isn't worth being generous toward is like very interesting and sad to me like when we think about that yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah all right moving uh, on um <laughs> moving on from from mad max uh we have a huge ovation for Anthony Bonner replacing yes. Oakley. Setting up pick and roll plays, trying to keep everybody on the same page. And he'll be sorely missed for the Rockets while he sits with four. The reaction as Anthony Bonner replaces Charles Oakley for Bonner the first time he has played this series. Very popular player here in New York. Signing as a free agent after three years with Sacramento. Played only briefly in the series against Indiana after starting seven of nine games at the beginning of the playoff series against the Nets and the Bulls. On a on a lighter topic, Anthony Bonner checks I into the game. He was so beloved. I, oh I, yeah, yeah. I, I I forgot that he was like this much of a fan favorite. Well, he was he was awesome. Um, and also he never played certainly in the playoffs. I don't think he'd been in a in a game since right. the Chicago series. I don't know. Sure. Did he even play against Indiana? I don't um, remember if he did. I, I yeah. don't think he did. And I'm assuming it's just Oakley just needed a, a, a break because his you know his feet were killing him or whatever. There wasn't foul trouble, um, but uh, but yeah, Bonner checks in as just like a little little change of, of energy, um, and he makes an immediate impact and stays in there. Like he's not in there for like a minute to spell someone. He plays like actual minutes in the NBA Finals. <laughs> It's yes. very, very exciting. I love the play <laughs> at the end of the quarter. So 
Anthony Bonner is fouled by Robert Ori on a dunk. And it's a really powerful move. It's a momentum play. And so Bonner's fouled on the dunk. And he goes to the line. And I write in my notes, these Bonner free throws are hilarious. So he's a oh, 40. Yeah. <laughs> he's what, like a 46% foul shooter? 40, 47. 47 now. Come on, Chris. Be, be, be fair. Be, four, be fair. 47% shooter on the season. <laughs> To give himself some extra cracks at making shots, he kind of does like a little hesitation move before he releases the ball, causing everyone to jump in the lane, which is a lane violation. That's so right. he basically earns himself an extra shot. And yeah. so to be clear, like he only has one free throw, but he winds yeah. up taking three attempts because there's so many lane, lane violations. Yeah. And he gets himself not one, but two extra free throw attempts. He winds up after... missing all three shots, which yeah. is so perfect. So perfect. It's a, it, yeah, it was incredible. Like that whole sequence was amazing. Uh, yeah, Elijah wanted stripped uh, down low. Starks collects it, pushes it up. With a, we have to talk about the, the bounce pass that Starks throws through traffic yeah. to Bonner, who's shrieking down and just dunks all over Robert Ory, just like yeah. all over his face. Starks with the lead for Bonner. Yes, and a count. Ory fouls him, bodies collapsing into the stanchion, uh, garden explodes. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, <laughs> to to cap the playoff, we get a bit of an anticlimax with three straight missed free throws. But uh, the Knicks have pulled it within six here at the end of the third. Yeah. Uh, third quarter wraps up with a uh, another emphatic rejection by Patrick Ewing uh, by uh, of Carl Herrera, who apparently all Carl Herrera did was shoot fadeaways that got blocked by Patrick Ewing. Mm. Um, but uh, Anyway, yeah, uh, Ewing misses another jumper to uh, to in the quarter. 69-63, um, we're headed to the fourth. Yeah, um, yeah, Ewing ends the quarter uh, shooting one of eight. Uh, he's six of 23 on the game. I'm not sure if that's good or not, but um, <laughs> but he is playing very, very um, solid, uh, aggressive defense. Um, and yeah, Nick's going into the fourth, down six, which it yep. feels like they've just been trailing for by the, the entire game. Yeah, so to begin the fourth, we have uh, Mason with a powerful move inside off the feed from Starks. It's now 69 to 65. Houston up by four. Um, of note, Hakeem starts the fourth quarter on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like this is an opportunity. You know, it's a four-point game. If the Knicks are going to get back on this thing, now is the time Knicks got to make a run. The Knicks keep getting called for <laughs> these illegal defenses. <laughs> Yeah. And it results it is, in Mario Ellie technical foul and yeah, go ahead. It is an illegal defense festival. Yeah. Uh says Marv, Marv says. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very yeah. fun. Very exciting. I love I love illegal defense uh, festivals. It's my favorite kind of festival. Mason um, with a dumb turnover dribble off his foot. Then Mason yep. with a drop step in the paint. Mason. That is a most unusual move for Anthony Mason. That's a most unusual move. Yeah. 71, 67, Houston. Yeah, Mason bodying Herrera in the paint. Um, Yeah. Let's see, another illegal defense. We also have Marv noting, once again, that Derek Harper is all over Sam Cassell. Yeah. um, Just pressuring him the entire way up the court. 
Um, Harper has four steals on the game, I think, at this point. Anthony Bonner is still in the game, uh, by the way, which is incredible to me. <laughs> it's a miracle, yeah. Yeah, we have some uh, some amazing Rockets defense, but Ewing grabs an offensive rebound. Uh, but then Greg Anthony is rejected by Olajuwon. Sam Cassell takes a shot to the groin Dude, at one point. Sam Cassell drives right at the rim. An official timeout as Vernon Maxwell checks in. gets the layup and the foul and dude he celebrates while lying on the floor this is Mm. the first houston field goal in 10 and a half minutes the score is now 75 to 71 houston's up by four with seven minutes and 11 seconds left him lying on the ground celebrating the foul while lying on his back pumping his fist it's like how old how old is sam cassell at this point 20 23 years old rookie in the league has like no sense of fear. I mean, he's at like the hallowed Madison Square Garden. Like, he just has no, no, like, just could not give a shit. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very uh, difficult to watch. Yeah, a guy who like right. He, he I for some reason this like this is a kind of a trope, and it's one of my least favorite tropes in sports. It just bothers me on like a deep level of the rookie who is not experienced enough to be afraid of the stage that he's on. Yeah. Like that's such bullshit to me. <laughs> like it seems it seems like a hack, like a cheat. No, it's <laughs> like uh, you know, as an actor when someone's like, "Don't you have stage fright?" Like I started acting in in plays and stuff when I was a little kid and I was like, "Not really. The thing is like I was too ignorant to know that I was supposed to be nervous." Right. Right. So it's like the same thing where it's just like, oh, is am I supposed to be afraid right now? Because like I didn't even know that this was like a scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. It feels extremely unfair to me and wrong on a, yes. on a moral level. Yes. Um, I feel like you need to experience fear, fear. and disappointment and defeat <laughs> yeah. uh, in order it to, was, you know, overcome those easy. things. It was very easy for some of these hate- young, like for some of the youngster Houston Rockets, like yeah. Ori... Ori and um, and Sam Cassell had some of the Derek Jeter thing that like so annoyed me as like a tortured New York Mets fan growing That's up. That's funny that you bring up Jeter because I was actually just thinking of another baseball analogy, and it's weird because I don't really know baseball at all. But I'll yeah. never forget the two thousand and was it? It was two thousand three, I think. No, mm-hmm. two thousand. Yeah, two thousand three because that was the series where the Yankees. The Aaron Boone homer to beat the Red Sox yeah. took him to the World Series, and it was all like, "Oh, Yankees are going to win another World Series." Um, and I was a Yankees fan, whatever, just like in college right. at the time, just as you know, New Yorker. I didn't really care, but I would watch uh, all, all the World Series games. And it was fucking Josh Beckett. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For the Florida Marlins. Marlins, yeah. I think he was a rookie yep. in that series, yep. and he just destroyed the Yankees. I think in two I games that he started. He, <laughs> again, it's like. If you put this in a Hollywood script, they'd be like, yeah, no, this is too ironic. But, like, he, I think Josh Beckett had a necklace with, like, a shark tooth on it. And it was, sure. like, it was like, 
what are you like from like South Florida? Like, yeah. like you don't give a shit. You're just gonna have a fucking shark tooth on your. And I was like, yeah. Oh, like yeah. I guess you're we're gonna, just gonna go lose, like we're fucking gonna lose to a to party like, and do some keg stands after this game. We're just like, gonna, you don't gonna give lose a shit. to like this like fucking white shark guy. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. Like I guess we're just gonna lose to the shark. But yeah, yeah no, you're like, playing the up, New York Yankees, the most historic, hallowed franchise in all of sports, and you're just like, yeah, I don't know, I don't give a yeah, fuck. I'm like, 19, I'm 20 years old. I don't fuck fuck you, Josh. Beckett. Uh, yeah, fuck course, that guy. <laughs> Josh Beckett would later win a World Series with the Red Sox. And oh, that's when, right. He was in the Red Sox. When yeah. he got, um, he kind of like famously got traded away from Boston to the Dodgers because the Boston Globe leaked this story about how he was a. <laughs> This is like so perfect. How he was a bad clubhouse influence because he used to eat um, chicken wings and beer in the clubhouse. Like he like literally was the epitome of like like a brilliant athlete who just didn't give a shit. Like he like wow. Just like he like yeah. Which is like honestly probably ha- like most of the recipe of his success was just like I don't give a shit. Like it's a stupid yeah. game. Like yeah. like whatever. Like if we win we win, if we lose we lose. Like who the fuck cares? Like I'm going to eat chicken wings. Like I don't give a shit. But yeah. um but growing up in New York as a tortured Mets fan, I always felt that way about Derek Jeter, which was like yeah. look at this fucking rookie. Like he came up as like a 19-year-old like singles hitting like slap happy like you know, nice defensive player, and he mm. won a championship immediately with the Yankees. And I remember feeling so resentful that everyone like, um, like uh, associated like the sec- like the success of the Yankees is due to like Derek Jeter. Is like, no, it's not. They have a great yeah. team around him. Like, he's a good player. Relax. Like, yeah, the, the pitching staff had nothing to do with it. Yeah, Mariano yeah. Rivera as their closer had nothing of, to do with it. And of course, Derek Jeter wound up being like a great Hall of Fame player. Yada yada yada. But it was just and also felt, probably the most overrated player in baseball history. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> I felt the same way about Cassell and Robert Ory, which is like, look at yeah. these assholes. They're just gonna like wind up like waltzing into a championship they'll always yeah. just be like minted as these like winning players you know what i mean yeah they've and, got the heart of a champion they've yeah got the heart of champ. yeah yeah exactly fucking bullshit yeah so um <sighs> all right so we got six minutes left here in the fourth hakeem and ewing are trading baskets 77 73 houston is up by four with about six minutes left uh oakley snatches a defensive rebound and literally bombs it with one oh, hand yeah. over his head down yeah. the court to a racing John Starks. It's a huge play. It's all about Oakley's pass. Maxwell for three. Oakley with the rebound. Starks chased by Maxwell. Eludes him and hits. Oh my God. He flings it over his shoulder. He collects this rebound and f- literally throws the ball over his shoulder. Like without even really looking down court as he's falling to the ground. It's basically um, like well, it's like a hook shot that he like yeah. basically did as a pass, right? Like Yeah. Exactly. Um, so he like bombs it down the court and now we're tied up. 77, 77, five minutes left. It is tied, baby. This is exactly the point in my notes where I wrote, What a comeback. This will be heartbreaking in capital letters. Oh, heartbreaking Jesus. if the Knicks lose. Oh, because at this point it was just like all like you the garden it. was chanting defense. Uh, right before that, Derek Harper uh, made a little step back. Yeah. Anthony Mason is guarding Olajuwon one-on-one in the post and just has him locked down. Um, uh, I mean, there's just like all these like just quintessential like Knicks plays where you're like, 
I, I and I've I texted you this like uh, uh, offline earlier, but um, but watching this game, I found myself more invested emotionally, um, so much more than I did. For some reason, in games one and two, I mean, obviously, game one we had. Um, you know, if, if anyone uh, listened to that uh, episode or remembers, um, we had some, you know, some some psychedelic aspects that we were <laughs> contending with uh, with our broadcast. So there was like a lot going on. Game two was just kind of like I don't know. It was for some reason it was just kind of it didn't really hit me. Um, but game three, man, it just it it like hit me different. Yeah. Uh, and and I was just like suddenly like. Oh man, I love. I do love this team. I like I, you, yeah, I think you said it at one point in our conversation offline, where you're like, "It's always game three, like around game three or game four, where it like set like sinks in for us because there yeah. is sort of a honeymoon f- phase of like game one is always like, wow, it's just so great to be here. You know what I mean? Right. Like the the, the novelty of the new series. Like, you're you're reacquainting something? yourself with these new players on yeah. the opposing team. Yeah, it's like, oh, Mario um, Elliott, I haven't thought about him in forever. Kenny, look, right. it's Kenny Smith. And then by game two, you're, you're kind of like, all right, well, you know, now I really want to win this one. And by game three, it's now it, there is like the opportunity to feel joy or pain yeah. in, in a very different way. Yeah, we've spent enough time now with both these teams where... Um, and there was also just something about maybe it was just being back in the garden, or maybe yeah. it was the quality of play. Frankly, like it didn't. This game didn't strike me as like ugly offense. It just struck struck me that there was really good defense being played. Like I was trying to focus more on that in my rewatch of just like yeah. just how stifling and swarming and energetic the the Knicks D was. Yeah, and, uh, and and it felt to me more like like a real like actual you know like the the cliche like football game like just slugfest uh you know just exchanging haymakers back and forth where like yeah it was low scoring and it was ugly but it wasn't because it was like just lots of missed shots and bad offense it was like really really good defense and guys just like digging in and like all the all the fucking bullshit cliche uh of like you know the garden in the 90s but like it started having an effect on me um and I was just like suddenly like wow I don't I I don't know if I've like actually felt like I've I've been rooting, uh, actually rooting as yeah. hard um, uh, up until this game like it's Same. it's you know as we've gone through this rewatch it's been more of a like you know a nostalgia trip a a a you know a self analysis therapy session all these things but like rarely have I actually just genuinely been like oh i'm just watching a basketball game and rooting for my team to win yeah i really really felt it strongly here i think also like a great uh book or movie or play like there there is an element to this game three where there there is like a a story and the story Mm. is like for the knicks the story is like they started very timid and afraid and sort of like nervous and and when I say they, I mean we, actually, like, the crowd. <laughs> We're always like, talking about we. <laughs> the we, yeah. Like, the crowd, actually, was nervous. And, like, you yeah. you sense that in the first half of the game, this, like, sort of pain, like, this, like, anxiety, this, like, death grip. And what you kind of experience in rewatching this game as a Knicks fan is, like, we kind of find our sea legs, where it's like, right, no, we can do this. We're a good team, and we are home, right. and we have the best fans, and so there is this sort of like romantic narrative of like us learning like, right, we're like remembering who we are again and like we're mm-hmm. remembering how we can win this game. Like, and so I think that is like 
kind of what you're talking about too right which is always being like the underdog but with this potential and the potential isn't you know we don't realize it at first but then like over time we like gradually grow it's like we like step into the moment (laughs) dude it's like the story of like the the protagonist in the movie where yeah. it's like, you know, like we have to like, yeah, it's the hero's the, journey, the hero's journey, right? Like we're going yeah. on the hero's journey and we're struggling in act in act one and act two, but by act three and four quarters, three and four, like there's a chance we might like save the day. And you know, you know what yeah. I mean? Like all, all the big objectives that happen in a, in a, in a, you know, three act story or whatever. Yeah. And it's why so, star Wars was a popular movie because right. they just like knew that formula and just nailed it. Yeah. Yes. So this game starts to become, I feel like especially like we become especially emotionally invested in this, in, yeah. in this. And it, we are starting to like really feel it here in the fourth. We've got, let's see, jumping back in here, about three and a half minutes to go. Robert Ori slashing in yep. kind of right to left through the lane, vicious stuff. Great change uh, of direction move, yeah. Yeah, puts the Rockets up four now, 81-77. Derek Harper, who this else? This is the play. Oakley just does not have the lateral movement to stay with Robert Ory, who can take it to the hole. That's what he was doing in the first quarter. 14 points for Ory. So this is the play yeah. where I, I realized, I was like, oh, this guy is the, the second most important player on the team. Yeah. So Derek Harper drains a three, cuts it to eighty-one eighty, and it just dawns on me. It was like, yeah, this is the guy. Like, like literally in the balls to the wall, kind of like nut crunching moment. Like, this is the guy that can actually potentially help us win a championship. Yeah, yeah. He he is our difference maker. Um, and we've talked about him in the past. Uh, you know, his his journey. Uh, from from you know wallowing in obscurity in Dallas for so many years of his prime, and then coming to New York, um, believing in following, God, like, fu- like yeah, literally th- th- thanking God for for bringing him <laughs> from Dallas to New York. Understanding that God does exist, um, and he was always this guy that was like, yeah, yeah, he's solid, like he's dependable, you know, good right. defender, never a star player, never close to being an all star, anything like that. But in this series, it was as if like he was just like rising to like the moment that he'd been waiting for his entire career his whole life. Yeah. and just showing like his, his leadership, his veteran, like cool, calm under pressure. Dude. Like, and again, these threes, it's like, we are all Derek Harper in that moment. It's like, <laughs> we have all been waiting for this moment in our lives to win the championship. Right. Like, yeah. cause we are, we are all of these players. Like we see ourselves in all of these players. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, like we we fall in love with Derek Harper in these moments because it's like yeah, I know what that guy is like. I know just what it feels like to be that guy right now. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, dude, we got to talk about Patrick, the open right. elbow jumper. Yeah. And so following the Harper three, Elajuan is bottled up inside. He misses a fadeaway. Nick's rebound. At this point, the Garden is standing. So, Ewing, for the first time tonight. 
everyone is on their feet. feet. There's still a little under three minutes to go now. Um, but everyone is just standing and cheering. Um, and then, yeah, Ewan gets it in the corner for a baseline two. Swish. Uh, two minutes, 43 seconds left. I mean, the place is just insane. Madison Square Garden is on its feet. And then, wow, Otis Thorpe flips Ugh. the ball at the rim, and he's fouled. Disgusting. 84-82, uh, two minutes, yeah. 40 seconds left. Houston Makes the free the throw lead. to complete the three-point play. Yeah, 20-second timeout. Knicks, 2.16 to go. Coming out of the uh, the timeout, um, Ewing misses a long jumper, uh, but R- Mason gets in for the rebound. He tips it, no, but Oakley tips it, yes. Tie game again, 84-84, <sighs> under two minutes to go. Um, yeah, man. I mean, now, yeah, now it's it's crunch time. Every single possession is Patrick, just white elbow knuckle. jumper. It's wet. Mm-hmm. Ewing emphatically pumps the fist. Yeah, the fist pumping. 84. Knicks are up by two. A minute 28 left. Uh, that Rockets perfect form, the flick of the wrist, the rainbow. He was almost behind the back backboard, it, it yeah. felt like, uh, from, from the uh, camera angle. Swishes the J. Just uh beautiful beautiful yeah nick's up to timeout houston coming out of the minute timeout, 28 marvin gook is talking about hakeem's struggles especially in the fourth a screenshot of this graphic well we talked you know it's it's been a while now since we've talked about that you know that uh famous new york fourth quarter you know flip switch switch flip whatever it's called mm. um and uh and man they really like in this series i mean they show it right here on screen in game one elijah won was 0-4 in the fourth quarter for five points. Obviously, all those points coming off free throws. In game two, he's 1-4 for four four points. And in game three so far, with a couple minutes, or just a little over a minute remaining, he's also 1-4 for four points. Uh, Mind you, this is Hakeem Olajuwon, the MVP, probably the best basketball player alive uh, who's actively playing, not named Michael Jordan. Um, And the Knicks have just completely, completely shut him down in each of the three fourth quarters of the NBA Finals. Uh, I mean, that is thanks to Ewing. That is huge thanks to Anthony Mason, um, who is, you know, as we've we've discussed at length, uh, guarding Olajuwon for for much of these games, uh, just giving him fits, yeah. Robert Ory loses Mason on the dunk, uh, Mm. 86 all, and then... Derek Harper, man. I write like Derek this, fucking Harper. Has this guy missed a shot all night? He hits the jumper 88-86. Knicks are up by two with 52.7 seconds left. Yeah, absolute ice water in his veins, folks. Yep. Yeah, just like a, a little step back. Just like, uh, nothing really happening, n- nothing developing. Uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna take this one, guys. Just, just step back, clutch yep. dagger. 86-82 Knicks. Yeah, man. And then... Sorry, 86-88. Nick's up too, yeah. Yeah, Sam Cassell with a backbreaker. <sighs> yeah. at the top of my lungs for my whole apartment building to hear uh the score is 89 to 88 with 28.7 seconds left houston is up by one point timeout Knicks. 
Yeah, this is this is the play I wrote in my notes. Like this is not now. I remember exactly fully why I have hated Sam Cassell for my entire life. Um, for anyone that remembers uh, in, our, in our natural balds draft, I believe you uh, you selected yep. him, Chris, in one of our later rounds, and I voiced my my displeasure. <laughs> um, I do not like Sam Cassell, um, and you know, rewatching these games. Um, I've I've kind of developed like you know with with some time and some distance I've like kind of developed an ability to like appreciate him on a certain level but but the reason I, I as you know just an immature juvenile sports fan I decided no this man is my enemy uh, was because of this play pretty much this was it um, one uh, two point game uh, with uh, thirty seconds left in the fourth quarter. And uh, yeah, Elijah one has the ball in deep. He sucks in the defense. Um, we have to say Derek Harper kind of kind of fell asleep on this play. Cassell was his man, and, and Harper kind of drifted into no man's land. Clearly, physically spent after the game that he has had, um, he just leaves uh, leaves Cassell open at the top of the three point line so that uh, Elijah one's able to kick it out to him for uh, an open three. Cassell just steps into it and just buries it deep deep into my heart. A dagger. Uh, putting the Rockets up one eighty nine eighty eight with 30 seconds left. You know, coming out of the timeout, they mentioned that Cassell played two years at Florida State. He played a total of 66 games at Florida State, and this year with the Rockets, he has played a total of 92 games, mm. uh, you know, with all the with all the playoff games here. And right. it got me thinking, man, like, it would have been cool to see Sam Cassell and Charlie Ward square off in this playoff series. Like, that would that actually would have been pretty cool. Um, yeah yeah uh all right coming out of the timeout we have uh an offensive foul called on patrick and vernon maxwell wait a second you can't just you can't just brush past that chris sure this is this is wait actually there's two things we have to mention first now i teased this earlier i'm i'm referencing anthony mason's haircut um oh my goodness there's a there's a shot here and I believe it's the, I'm pretty sure it's the first shot that they, that they, that we're able to see really, um, the design on the side of Anthony Mason's head. Um, now again, r- calling back to, uh, a, a long previous episode, our, our, uh, NBA haircuts draft, That's Anthony a- Mason was our, was our first selection, uh, in that draft, uh, if, if you remember, and uh, and I believe, and I'm just calling hand. this yep. calling this out from from memory. I believe in that episode in that draft we discussed Anthony Mason's haircut in the 1994 NBA Finals, and we talked about the phrase "in God's hands." Um, now, uh, I can confirm with this screenshot uh, of our of our uh, of our broadcast here, "in God's hands" is drawn in hair on the side of Anthony Mason's head by Freddie Avila. Queens barber Freddie Avila, um, and I want you to look at though Chris, not yeah, just the the lettering. About, yeah, the same thing. The star. The star. Yeah. There is a eight point star. It's not like a like a like a cartoon star. It is no. just lines. It looks like an you know like a like, like yeah like an asterisk exactly. It's like an asterisk or a like a sunburst uh, type type design or like a star, but it, it is inc- so incredibly even in in the SD um, you know video quality, it is so precise and like the lines are so perfectly straight. Um, I just have to give respect 
and and just undying admiration for the work of Freddie Avila, Anthony Mason's barber. It's it was one of the most breathtaking images um, that that I can remember seeing. We talked about this a lot in the hair draft, uh, and we should just mention it again here. Like what's sta- what's staggering about the work that's done here is you know you know occasionally you will see uh, someone nowadays with something carved into their head right mm-hmm. where what's 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 written out or designed or you know drawn or whatever is 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 shaved what what's unique about mason what what's unique about mason's haircut here is he effectively has a bald scalp and the yeah. only thing that's remaining in hair yeah. is is the graphic design. Think about that. It's, Think it's, about that for a second. Imagine how much time it would take to to write a phrase and a visual design uh using, you know, uh whatever tools Barbara you like, you know, like a very uh whatever like fine tooth clippers whatever uh electric razor um, imagine carving a design into hair. Now imagine the inverse of that, which is carving the yeah. entire head. It's the negative of so, a photo. Yeah. Yeah. There is so much more space. I mean, I, I can't imagine how just how long it must have taken because, right, to to reiterate, it's not a, a bald design in a head of hair. It is a bald head with the design, design of hair. Of hair. It is just mind-boggling to to really to really dwell on. Yeah, and, we've and, never and seen reflect on. We've never seen anything like it. It was the most innovative uh, use of hair uh, as a personal statement that we've ever seen. Yeah, in the history of the NBA, and I would go as far as saying in the history of sport. I don't sure think Man- we have mankind. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't think we have a more innovative use of hair as art than Mm -hmm. what uh, Freddie Avila and Anthony Mason combined to do here uh, with his scalp. Yeah, and we also discussed this in the hair draft, but the phrase, in God's hands... Now, I was not raised in a religious household. Um, I I can't say that I am a believer in in God, but I remember seeing that um, as an 11-year-old boy and just being like, all right, regardless of whether or not I share you know mason's spiritual beliefs um seeing those words just uh drove home to me like the significance the weight the gravity of what i was watching it was like oh like this is this is bigger than this is like like, this is like a game for it yeah exactly suddenly like the stakes were so much higher this has like judgment day qualities like yeah where it's like Oh, this is like literally life or death for you. Like as if I wasn't already in like emotionally invested enough. Um, and Anthony Mason, as again we've discussed at length, was my second favorite player on this team. He was the first uh, NBA jersey that I ever purchased and wore as a child. Anthony Mason, like was like, I mean, so many players on this team were my quote unquote heart and soul. But like Mason was like kind of my guy, and like yeah. just seeing him with that phrase, I was just like. Oh my god! I just I I want this so so badly, so badly for you, uh, f- for me. It was just like God. It was nothing more important uh, than than the outcome of this stupid fucking game. Um, 
It's, it's funny. Uh, uh, I was listening to the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast the other day, and Spike, uh, Spike and Mike had uh, Andrew Yang, uh, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, on the podcast, who's like a diehard Knicks fan. And they were asking him about his fandom growing up, and Andrew Yang and and Spike asked Andrew Yang like, so were you were you like a Starks guy or were you a Ewing guy? Because ultimately he was like, I feel like the team came down to like one of the two. You're either a Starks guy or a Ewing guy. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, it's so interesting because pretty sure you and I both were Mason guys. <laughs> like like. Like, yeah. If if you, I mean, it's interesting because the team really had so many like factions of like right people. I like I. I you I could kinda, be a Ewing guy, or yeah, uh, you, I, you could be an Oakley guy. You could be. I kind of um, disagree know. with Spike in that in that regard. That like you were there were like two camps because there were just so many actual like camps on this team. But I yeah. think the the Mason camp is like a really unique zone. <laughs> yeah. It's like a really, <laughs> it is. It's the like, Mason zone. Yeah, yeah, the Mason zone is like when you talk about the Warriors they're like are you like a Durant guy like or a Curry guy or were you like a Clay Thompson guy? It's like I'm more of like a Draymond guy. It's like yeah. really? Oh wow. Yeah. It's like yeah, I'm more like I'm mostly into Draymond. Um yeah, so I, I I know what you mean, man. Like that the Mason was just such a special yeah. player. Yeah, there's something different about him, you know. Yeah, um, and obviously, you know, Ewing was was still my number one. He was my favorite. He was, you know, like uh, if I had to pick one, I would always go with with the captain. But like, sure. In my heart, I was like, all right, but secretly, like Mason's my guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. And uh, yeah. Well, yeah. It like. I mean, I mean, I, I mean this as nicely as possible. Like, it didn't require any sort of like courage, or you didn't have to be the most astute Knicks fan or sports fan to be like, "Yeah, Patrick is great." Like, obviously, right. like I love right. him. It took us right. something a little extra and different to be like, you know, who I really love though is yeah, Anthony Mason. <laughs> it, I mean, it felt like, like being like a like a like a super fan of like a really indie rock band where you're exactly. like, no, 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 no. Like, if you actually know your shit, like. Talk like, to me about Mason. Yeah, like it doesn't, you know, like, look, everyone knows that, you know, Pearl Jam or Aerosmith or whatever band was like, you know, great. This was like the hit band in 1994, but it was like, it was really the deep cut band where it was like, that's yeah. where you kind of like prove your your worth. Um, yeah. All right, back to the game here. So <sighs> Sam Cassell is intentionally fouled. He goes to the line. He hits both. Yeah, wait, wait. Yeah, so real quick, the, there's an offensive foul on Ewing, which I, I think, I, I like. I was. I couldn't. I couldn't get over let's, this. Let's this. look at it again. Rockets by one. Down to 25 seconds. 16 on the 24. And we get a whistle away from the ball. Houston is celebrating an offensive foul. Apparently, called on the Knicks. It's on Ewing. Patrick Ewing called. For I mean, the foul. it's a pretty. It's a pretty fucking basic play. You know I guess what? It's, too, it's just it's, so innocuous that it's like. It, it's even, so innocuous. Even the and, and, camera guy is kind of like fool. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, when yeah. there's like a really bad, when there's like a really egregious foul, the camera usually pans and zooms in to like catch it. But this is like yeah. such a nothing foul that it's like, wait, what? Like, why did you just stop the play? Like, I would have seen something if there was a reason to stop the play. Yeah. And all and you see is just extending around and like Houston celebrating. 
Vernon Max uh, were know, like pumping his fist basically like yeah. he won the Super Bowl and it's like, wait, what what is going on? Like why is he so happy? Like I would have noticed right. if there was something really bad that happened. Right. No one fell to the ground, no one flopped. It was just like a simple screen that Starks is trying to curl off of. And reminder, this is twenty four seconds left in the game of game three of the NBA finals, a one point game. You know, traditionally, this is the kind of play where the referee wants to allow a basketball play to occur because that's, you know, what you pay money to watch as a basketball fan. You want to see a, you know, a action happen. But the refs are just like, nah, eh, let's, let's just end the game. Yeah. Uh, we're good. Honestly, for the style of play <sighs> of 1994... That is a horseshit call. I mean, it's a horseshit call for any era of basketball, but really by 1994 standards, we're like, you know, like, it, 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 yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's not good. It's and, just, it, you know, the game was such a physical, like such a more physical product yeah. at this point. Like for, like, at that you, point in the game, in that series, in that year, you would have needed like a guy to like fucking break a leg to call a foul on what, what was probably going to be like the final uh, possession, you know, the, the final like like really important possession of the game. Here's how you um, know it was a bad foul that it didn't even affect Vernon Maxwell's ability to stay with Starks. No, like, he, he Starks really, didn't get open on the play. No, like Maxwell runs through the screen. Like it's 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 yeah. not even effective. Like he, you know what I mean. He he maybe like loses a half step on Starks, but it's not, it's not even a good pick. Like it's it's it, or it's not that it's a bad pick, but it's like Maxwell just fights right through it. It's it's nothing. Yeah, no, it's absolute garbage, dog shit. And you know we can talk about how the Knicks had benefited from. I mean, did, did calls, he even make contact know? with him? It looks like he just stepped in front of him. Yeah, I mean, he just kind of like bumps his hip. You know. Uh like, did he shuffle his feet, like, a tiny bit? Yeah, may- like, maybe. But again, like, in that moment, with those stakes, like, you need to have something so obvious, so yeah. egregious. Um, yeah, it was really shocking. Like, And again, it was something that I did not remember at all from my childhood. Um, I, I, yeah, I was just dumbfounded. And, yeah, like, again, we, we can talk about, like, the Hugh Hollins call and uh, against the Bulls, uh, you know, the Scottie Pippen foul on Huber Davis. We can talk about, you know... The flagrant foul called on Reggie Miller at the end of Game Seven um, of the Indiana series, which was insane. So, like the Knicks had, had benefited, sure, from calls of their own, but like, man, this was a bad one. This was a really, really yeah, it was tough one. one to stomach. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, I will say, you know, there were other opportunities. To, like, it, it, uh, you know. Yeah, the Knicks benefited from bullshit calls too, and yeah, so. There's an intentional foul. Cassell goes to the line. Um, it don you know it dawns on me at this point like this Sam Cassell. This guy's going to be a star. Like he's going to yeah. be like one of the all time. Yeah, this was his his coming out. He moment. is just like an all time most confident guy. You know, yeah. like just it's, it's unshakable in, ice water. Yeah, his confidence. Honestly, his confidence overrides his like abilities, like his natural yeah. abilities. His confidence literally like brought him to new heights in terms of like the stuff he was able to do on the court. So it's ninety one eighty eight. Houston's up by yeah. three. Twenty two seconds left. Yeah, and so it's not out of reach here. It's only a three point game, no. one possession. Yeah. No, no, not at all. So we got to talk about this final possession. Uh, let's break yeah. down the whole thing. Rockets by three. Hopper played by Maxwell. Starks being guarded by Ori. 
Starks looking for the shot. He leads Elijah on, gets it off the three. Oakley with the rebound. Out of six seconds. Here's Starks getting the good look for the three to tie. And a foul is called. Now that could have been a four-point play. Akeem Elijah yeah, making so, contact. Um, so Starks has two looks from three. He misses both. Yeah. The first feels... Yeah. So the the first feels sort of wild and out of control. The second one was a not out of control, but the first one feels a little bit. The first one is not. He's shooting first while one he's is, moving, right? Yeah, first one is desperation. He's drifting into the corner yeah. to elude defenders and and kind of flings up a corner three. There's that a doesn't pick and roll. really have a good chance of of going in. There's a pick and roll where Hakeem Olajuwon gets switched off and is on Starks. So Starks is trying to get up a three, and he has Hakeem kind of in his in his in his view. So he's he's trying to fade away from Hakeem and hoist one up. It feels a little bit out of control. He misses that. Uh, Knicks get the rebound. They swing it around the arc. It find the ball finds Starks again. It's a good clean look. Yeah, and wide open. And he's fouled. Now Elijah rushes out to contest the three, and you know Starks gets the shot off. So again, this is probably questionable. But but he collapses into Starks, you know, before he even lands. So it's uh, you know I, I would say not a not a controversial call. Uh, yeah. Foul on Elijah on the three point shot. Marv notes immediately that could have been a four point play. Yeah. Um, so, so, so Starks is fouled, and uh, I'm thinking immediately. Okay, you know, like this is this is great. This is like this yeah, is like amazing. The, I mean, it's 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 a po- this is a positive outcome. Like, yeah, we have I a mean, chance sh- to tie the game. We're down three. Sure, I'm nervous. Like, I'm I'm fucking very nervous with like. John Starks going to the foul line. He needs to sink all three of these, but like yeah. he's a pretty we, good free throw shooter. But this is a very high pressure we're situation. <laughs> we're at home. Yeah. Like he's a gutsy player. Like you know, it, it's one of our guards. I mean, like it's not Anthony Mason on the line. Like you know, like John Starks has a real shot to like tie this game. We could be going to overtime here. So three yeah. shots. Yeah. What an up, incredible right? moment this would be. So all of a sudden. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm like, wait. So Starks hits the first. Yeah. And then I'm like, like, all right, great. Wait a minute. Why? Only, only two more wait, to go. Wait, wait, wait. Why is Matt Gukas asking Marv about whether or not Stark should intentionally miss the second free throw attempt? Like, why? <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense. Like, no, we need, to, we need all three that? of these, Matt. <laughs> fucking Matt, idiot? we're down in three. He needs yeah, to make like, all three. What are you talking about, Matt? Matt? Like, what are you talking about? Starks, five of six. The Knicks are 13 of 18 at the uh, foul line, but we're down to 3 of 9, 10 seconds now. Does he miss this one on purpose, man? Two-point lead. Yes. All right. Let's see how Starks plays it. And then I'm realizing, like, wait. No, 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 no. No, wait. So let me get this straight. You're telling me that... This is before there was a rule change, apparently. Yeah. I'm now screaming at my computer. I'm rewinding the video to make sure like did I miss something? Was his was he was his foot on the line? Like I don't understand. Like why would he only be taking two free throws? Hakeem Olajuwon bearing down on him so much so that he committed a foul in the play. A lot of people in the NBA would like to see the rule change, much as it is in college when you are fouled in that situation that you would get three free throws. Of course that is not the rule in the NBA. NBA right now. Yes, Pat Riley would like to make that appeal right now. Starks well, five it of turns six. out that there was a rule that if it, 
There was there was a rule that if you <laughs> Chris, shot a three and Chris, you were found, try to try to try to collect yourself. I know this is difficult. You only got two foul shots on a three point field goal attempt. If that you were can't fouled. that can't no that can't that can't be right. Why? I'm sorry, but that doesn't make any sense. If you but if you make the sh- shot, it's worth three points. So if you get fouled on the shot, you should be able to get all three of those point points. I mean, right? it seems like otherwise, why why wouldn't you just uh, foul uh, everyone? Yeah, otherwise, every, every three point shot should get fouled. Exactly. Marv notes at one point he's like uh, many have some, many have suggested that the NBA adopt the NCAA's uh, uh, you know rule of of getting three foul shots for getting fouled on a three, but no. And I'm like Jesus Christ. So at this point, the NCAA had had the the three foul shot rule, but the NBA hadn't. Yeah, yeah, hadn't adopted that yet. Yes, that's. Incredible to me. Yeah, Do we know it, what year what year they changed it? Let me Google it. Yeah, like it, it was one of those things too that was like a complete surprise to me. And then I was like, Oh, I guess I I guess I do remember that not always being the rule. Okay. But it's like it's so obvious and so logical that like it wasn't conceivable to me that, that it wasn't always the rule, you know? In nineteen ninety, the NCAA adopted the rule of allowing a player who's fouled while shooting a three to get three foul shots. I'm trying to figure out when the NBA adopted that rule. Uh, 94, 95. <laughs> That's you. hilarious. That is really you. funny. That's you. really, really, really funny uh, to learn. They called it the yeah. John Starks rule. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah, 94, 95. They shortened the three-point line. Mm-hmm. Uh, 22 feet in the corners, extending to 23 feet, 9 inches at the top of the key, to a uniform 22 feet around the basket. And the same season, 94-95, the year directly following uh, this NBA Finals, players are awarded three foul shots uh, for for any player fouled while attempting a three-point field goal. 94-95. Uh, I hate it. Just uh, just one year, just one year off there, folks. Uh, so, so yeah, John Starks could have tied the game uh, in Game Three uh, of the NBA Finals with uh, what fifteen seconds, twenty seconds remaining. Um, but instead, he um, he got two foul shots, which uh, forced him to intentionally miss the second, um, which was then rebounded by Otis Thorpe, and Houston called the timeout, effectively ending the game. Ben, put me out of my misery um, here. Starks misses the second shot. Rockets get the rebound. This thing is over. Thorpe is fouled. Cassell hits a couple yeah. of free throws. It was it was over when they fouled Starks. Yeah. Game ends. I mean, it was. Yeah. Game ends ninety three eighty nine. Houston yeah. takes the series lead two games to one. Two games to one. Um, yeah, this would prove a, a pretty critical game. God, uh, Sam had Cassell it, in this end of game interview with Hannah Storm. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not really sure I was able to brimming, listen to that. Dude, just fucking brimming with confidence. It's, yeah. it's, it's bad. It's bad. Cassell scored the final seven points for the Rockets uh, of the game. Um, Honestly, the man. three-point dagger and then two trips to the free-throw line that he calmly swished uh, all four of. Um, finished the game with 15 points. Um, I'm not feeling great, like, right now. Like, I'm not, like, I'm just, like, not feeling great. And, like... Yeah. I got to be honest with you. I'm very conflicted about even reaching out to like, I'm thinking of David Futernick, good mm. friend of mine who's a Knicks fan. 
I don't even know if I should remind him of like, do you remember how game three ends? Like, do you, do you remember that like Starks had like a great look to tie the game? He got fouled. And instead of giving him three foul shots, he only got two. Like, I don't know if like yeah. I, I think that would actually be very like not okay to like share that <laughs> with someone. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah it it would be like it would yeah it would feel like you were like doing like a it would just be like yeah. hey dude do you um what do you remember about your parents divorce like right yeah you, it would feel like like doing an actual yeah like, emotional crime against it was like, someone oh do you do you do you remember how did you know that your dad was cheating on your mom or like did they yeah did they like did they tell you the truth about it? it's like actually i just wanted to like forget it like i just wanted to sort of like forget yeah how bad it was yeah how do you how do you feel about the time that you were bullied in yeah. seventh grade and then went home and cried right. uh yourself to sleep right would do you, you care still, to talk about that it's like do you still wet the bed like are you did you ever really get over that or do you still yeah. like are you still in therapy for that or what's going yeah. on it's like yeah yeah how about the time you um you asked a girl to uh, a high school dance and she said no thanks i just like you as a friend yeah why don't we why don't we discuss that let's for, revisit like, that a couple hours yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, nothing um, really to say here beyond that, man. Like I wow. don't feel great. Uh, we're tr- only trailing the series two games to one, but it feels pretty devastating. Yeah. That really felt like uh, a game that we needed. It felt like, yeah, like this is not going to be an easy series and these are games that we need to win. And, um, and if we're not going to win this this one, it's like, okay. Yeah, Derek Harper finishes the game with a, uh, a team high, 21 points, shot nine of, six, uh, 9 of 15 from the field, including 3 of 7 from downtown. Um, also had uh, 4 steals. Um, yeah, just a, a great all-around performance from Derek. Uh, the Sam Cassell um, defensive breakdown at the end of the game notwithstanding. Ewing finishes with 18 points, shooting 9 of 29, uh, which is 31% from the field. Uh, Also attempted uh, zero free throws. Zero free throws for Patrick Ewing. Not ideal. Uh, Did have seven blocks uh, and a steal, uh, 13 rebounds, including six offensive. So he was working out there, uh, just just not really able to put it together offensively. Starks finished with 20 points, nine assists. It's so weird to me that John Starks was regularly the leading assist, uh, assist getter on yeah. the team. You don't think of him as like the distributor, but yeah. somehow he always was. Um, yeah, Lajuan finished uh, with just 21 points on eight of 20 shooting, 40%. So, you know, like if you can hold Hakeem Lajuan to 21 points, like that's pretty good. That's, that's a job well done. Uh, he also had seven blocks and a steal. 11 rebounds, 7 assists by Olajuwon. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, that's all, man. That's all I got. That's about it. Yeah, yeah. that's all I got. I have to try to wow. edit this now. Yeah, sorry. This was a absolute draining marathon. <laughs> uh, you know, we don't have that many of these games left, so we're, we're going to milk these last few, folks. Uh, I hope you're on board for it, and if not... Uh, Please unsubscribe. We just have to get through but it. But it's yeah. going to get... I mean, we yeah, just have to get through it. There's really not... Like, I don't know what to tell people. Like, if you need it's to... It's only going to get hairier from here. That's all I know. If you need to opt out, if you need to take a break, 
wouldn't yeah. fault you in the least bit. But no, no, no this way. is not about you right now. This is about <laughs> us. <laughs> um, uh, do yeah. leave that five star review, but oh this, yeah, please. This is uh, this is not for you. Um, please rate and review. Tell us how much you loved this light, breezy, airy trip down memory lane. Yeah, with your good friends on Swish FM. Ben, that's it. Um, um, have a wonderful rest of the day. Uh, oh, I certainly will, Chris. Do I'm, uh, uh, in a great. I'm in, I'm in a great mood, and um, yeah, do something yeah. nice for yourself, would you? Take a walk. Yeah, and uh, I will uh, talk to you next week. I guess. See you at Game Four. A, a pleasure, as as always. You can listen to Switch. 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 Switch.